and welcome, welcome to the other side of midnight, good evening, good morning. This is Kinthea, and I am standing in with our sound engineer, Keith Morgan. We are standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who was on standby to do the show, and his monitor died. So we're all in different states. Keith is back east, and I'm on the west coast. And so we are going to bridge this show and uh, have a great time together. Uh, I want to share with you Richard's thoughtful intro to the show. By the way, the show is called 75 Years Seeing Flying Saucers. What, if anything, have we learned? And our guests tonight are Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa. And I know it's going to be a really amazing show. I'm going to learn a lot and discover a lot. So Richard uh, set the tone for this show, and here is what he had to say. The UFO phenomenon, sorry, it's the 21st century governmental speak, unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAP, has been going on for over three quarters of a century. But the truth is, we, the average U.S. citizens, still haven't a clue as to what they really are. Oh, I know all the UFO explanations that have been around for the past 75 years. Top secret U.S. government anti-gravity prototypes being repeatedly tested right over major U.S. cities, New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., right, or... A stunning earthly aerospace breakthrough made by some potentially hostile foreign power, but oddly never used. Not in Korea, Vietnam, the war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. Makes sense, yeah? Hmm. Or the Trump card, their genuine ET spacecraft that literally come and abduct some Americans in the middle of the night and sometimes in the broad. The truth is after 75 years of literally millions of Americans seeing something up there, we still don't know scientifically what UFOs really are. But my guests tonight, Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa, have detected fascinating scientific patterns in the more than 160,000 UFO sightings that have been publicly logged over those last, say, 75 years, which are ultimately unique potential clues to what and from whom UFOs may ultimately come. So I, uh, I'm really excited to bring on our two guests. And again, Keith Morgan is co-hosting with me, so he'll be jumping in, in whenever he wants. Our first uh, guest, well, they're going to be on together, is Cheryl Costa. Cheryl grew up in Corning, New York, leaving to join the Air Force and then the Navy. She had a five-year career as an industrial filmmaker for IBM, and eventually a long career working for Lockheed Martin as an information security analyst and investigator. She hunted hackers. She also had several radio shows, a cable TV show, 
and wrote plays and performed at local theaters. She is a published mystery writer, as well as author of several UFO books. As a journalist, Cheryl wrote the widely popular UFO column, New York Skies, for the Syracuse New York Times.com from 2013 to 2019. She was awarded Researcher of the Year in 2018. Our other guest, Linda Miller-Costa, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. When she was a teenager, the Tuyahoga River caught fire. It made an environmentalist out of her. She moved to Washington, D.C. area and had an iron and had environmental science librarian positions at the National Academy of Sciences, where she learned publishing, and Environmental Protection Agency, where she was head librarian for their toxicology library for 15 years. After moving to Syracuse, New York, to be closer to Cheryl's family, she owned a fabric store for five years and ended up returning to the library to work at a private Jesuit Catholic college library at Le Moyne College, Moyne College. Linda is the leading author of UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015. I want to welcome you both, Cheryl and Linda. Uh, What a diverse background. Let's let me, I'm so curious, Cheryl, so you've gone from science to being a playwriter and doing mystery novels. This is, I'm so curious, what got you into the UFO phenomenon? You want to tell us a little bit of this journey? Well, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, people have multi-facets facets to their lives, and uh, my first encounter with UFOs was when I was 12 and I was with my parents. It was a August afternoon and uh, my mother had my father stop the car and pointed a, a sphere parked out there in a clear blue sky, western sky. And we talked about it and she said it could be the Air Force. And this is in 1965. And oh. so it could be the Air Force. It could be a weather balloon. Uh, NASA was only about five or six years old at that point. And then she said, you know, it might be people from another world. And, of course, that fascinated me as a 12-year-old. And that got me. And uh, you know how parents, uh, uh, teens look at parents, you know, mom and dad are stupid kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, mom uh, and I both started getting books at, at the library. And it was one of those few things, even to this day, we can. that's one of the, only, one of the few things we can talk about civilly about things. Um Uh, It was a favorite subject with both of us, and um, that's where it went. Now, I kind of sat on my – I just read things all the time. Uh, I wasn't a fanatic. If it came across, you know, we saw something in the newspaper. uh, Somebody had a book on their their coffee table. You know, I I, I read it or took a look at it. Um, Now – Let's see, working at I uh, working at Lockheed Martin, I was with them 32 years, had a variety of jobs. Uh, I went to film school, and I have a degree in entertainment writing. So uh, the deal that's there quite is quite a leap from very left brain work to very right brain work. Well, it was kind of a balance. Um, it was a balance. Uh, I worked with high tech stuff every day, so 
the arts the arts was my my escape in uh. my on my own time okay now I started not trying to be a uh, being a playwright um uh, because I went to film school and uh, I when I went to film school I made a I made a bunch of in, independent films in school and somebody took one of the bigger projects a VHS tape over to the theater department and in the university I was at the theater department and the film department didn't talk to each other hmm. And uh, it was a very strange thing. They were in two different colleges at the same uh, university. And uh, the professor who taught uh, the, inter- the media perform- perform- sorry, the performance media program over in the theater department said, I want to meet this person. And uh, he basically uh, quite literally dragged me into the media writing program over there in the theater department because you know, as he told me, a lot of my people, I'm, I'm lucky to get a couple of good treatments, maybe a script out of them by the end of the semester. He said, you went out and produced the darn movie. You know, I want you in my program, you know. So um, that that was how I got into playwriting. And I was always, I've been in community theater since I was 15. So it's been 50, 55 years doing community theater. And I've got that most of my like plays. natural fit. It was a good fit, yes. And I, so I had my, a lot of people used to joke about me because I, my other 40 hour a week job, as they used to say, was, was community theater. I, I was working on other people's plays. I, I did technical for years. And then in the early 90s, I stopped doing technical and started uh, directing and producing at community theaters and uh, doing, doing the business side of the, of the plays. And of course, because I was in that position, I was able to bend the right ears and in the summer one act festival, get my play, uh, get my plays produced. So it was a good mix. Um, the UFO side of this whole thing, I had to wait. I was in the military for almost 10 years between both services. And then later working for Lockheed Martin, I still had a high security clearance and they frowned on people being members of groups like MUFON, that type of thing. So I kept it pretty much to myself. And when I was retired in 2011, that freed me up. And then in 2012, uh, I was finishing uh, my arts and entertainment degree, or the writing degree. And the bottom line on, on that was uh, uh, one night, I, uh, I was working at a different newspaper than the one I ended up writing for. And uh, at late night, we'd get the press going and run the daily edition. And we had about a two-hour run, and it was uh, quite literally um, November 5th, 2012. Took a look at CNN.com, and there was a little sidebar story that said, UFOs have been declining since the 1980s. Maybe they were always just an urban legend, you know, and just that was being – <laughs> that was the date. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, being well read on the topic matter. I said, wait a minute, that sounds like misinformation. So for the first time in my life, I went out to the national UFO reporting center and I dug down into a couple of pages, got some year end totals in the back and put them into a little spreadsheet and uh, plotted out a little bar graph. And the things went from, uh, from left to right. And they went up like a rocket and going, what memo didn't the UFOs get, you know? And uh, so that got me going, and I started writing a column for the Syracuse New Times um, uh, about some months later. And uh, during the course of writing the newspaper column, it was a weekly column, and that sounds like a great idea. Oh, wow, having a weekly column, that must be fun. Uh, The only way I can explain it to people is think of it in the context you got a a term paper to do every week. 
Ah. Okay, and it, it, it only had to be somewhere between 300 to 1,000 words, but you had a term paper every week. And you had to have something interesting to write about, and you couldn't just always write about citing stories and things like this. So part of what I was doing started – I started adding up the numbers in New York State since that was my beat. And that's what led to developing this idea of, of, of gathering numbers because we got good mail. We got very good feedback every time we presented numbers. That's pretty much how we got to be right now publishing two books in the last five years on UFO statistics. So this sounds very unique, and I'm curious to know, were there others across the states tracking the statistics, or were you like the first and only? Um, we were the first ones to be doing this um, mm-hmm. that we knew of. I mean, you know, the MUFON chapters would add up whatever they what, what they had going for a month, but nobody was doing – they always tended to do field investigations – and they they tended to only look at one event at a time. Ah, okay? so there wasn't and, an overarching view. No, there wasn't. And what they also the other thing they they tended to do was they might give you a list of you know, hey they do a summary and say hey we had you know X number of sightings in New York State you know for for the month, and that was it. Uh, and we started digging into like the counties and things like this. And the funny thing was, would you believe that National UFO Reporting Center, New Fork, and MUFON, um, well, New Fork didn't, doesn't collect county information from the person reporting a UFO. They take the city and state. And oh. MUFON does collect it, but one of the things we found out working with the data was that uh, a, a lot of people don't either fill in the, let's see, 3% don't fill in the, the city that they're reporting it from. And uh, some people don't spell the name of their city, right? And that means very frequently they either get the county wrong or they don't put it in at all on the MUFON side. And we so, found out there was information that was not being looked at by looking at the county information. And uh, hold the thought for a moment. The idea was, reported a couple of articles and some of the old timer MUFON folks saw some of our reports doing it by county and they said wait a minute we didn't know there was a cluster of UFOs in that county you know and that type of thing and that got Linda and I talking so I'm curious you know when you talk about them reporting how were they reporting they were phoning it in why was it getting misspelled were there forms for them to fill out because I think probably back then it wasn't a an online thing. So how did they report? No, well, remember we're working with 21st century data here. Okay, so both both the um, MUFON and New Fork added uh, online interfaces back uh, in the early 2000s, around 2004 or so. But prior to uh, the mid 80s. Most people reported things by if there was a newspaper clipping, but most newspapers weren't reporting UFOs since 1968 after the doc, Dr. Condon did his report to Congress. The newspapers stopped reporting this stuff because they were told it was baloney, nothing to study here type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so people, if they did report them, they sent clippings. Uh, sometimes you'd see some guy on the news say, hey, there's this guy in Ohio collecting stuff, you know, and, and they might give out the guy's phone number. I remember in the 70s seeing some guy that was recording stuff and people would call his answering machine, leave, leave their sighting or something like that, or they'd fax it in. 
in the early 80s, people started coming online with America Online and CompuServe and that gave people email capability. By the early 90s, we were all on dial-up uh, and uh, passing information to these services. But it was in the early 2000s when major amounts of broadband was available in, big, in, in major cities and their suburbs did the reporting function become uh, something much easier. And did it become more standardized so that you're getting now the city names and so on? Well, yes and no. Uh, it still relies on the individual to fill out the, the form correctly. You know, filling out a UFO reporting form has all the charm of filling out a uh, credit re- a credit re- uh, application. Uh, it, it's, it's discouraging uh, for a lot of people. And do you think perhaps maybe people don't want to report it because they don't want to be seen as weird? Well, well, both both services said they respected uh, confidentiality, mm-hmm. but there were any number of reasons. Uh, I'll give you an example: three percent, three and a half percent, four percent, something like that, uh, would leave the blank for the city. Uh, either they didn't know where they were, maybe they were out in the middle of nowhere and they didn't know where they were, or in some cases, they people used to fill in. Uh, my mother told me not to tell you. The sheriff told me not to tell you. My husband told me not to tell you. You know, uh-huh. uh, I'm afraid to tell you. There's only 12 people living in our town, and if I report it, they'll know it's us. You know, that uh-huh. uh, we used to see all kinds of narrative like that. But um, it, it's a really tiny percentage. But there was an issue there. So the bottom line is, people, the broadband made a big difference for everybody to be able to report the stuff. Whether or not they filled out the forms very well, that's another issue. Uh, some people will fill out a form for give you a really good report, but they won't they won't give you any personal information and tell you how to call them or anything like that. Okay, so that makes it more clear. I'd like to uh, bring Linda in on the conversation. So, Linda, I'm understanding that you went through actually a fire at Cuyahoga River. Is that did I say Cuyahoga? Cuyahoga River. Yeah, and. Uh, so you want to share a little bit about your transition from going into environmental work to UFOs, how that came about? Well, actually, it's related. Um, very famous, 1969, the, uh, Cleveland was a steel town, and the steel mills would dump all their um, pollutants into the Cuyahoga River. And in June of 1969, it caught fire. It had so many poisons and toxins in it. And uh, I was appalled. And uh, uh, when I, I got a degree in psychology, Case Western Reserve University, and then I moved to the big city, moved to the Washington, D.C. area. And eventually, uh, one of my first major parts of my career was at the uh, National Academy of Sciences. And I was working on various studies in the environmental science division. And you have to remember that back in the 1980s, environmental studies was a brand new field. Um, it was, uh, in fact, there was no such thing as an environmental studies degree. You had a chemistry degree or a psychology degree or a French degree. Uh, you know, it's just they just took intelligent, curious people that knew how to do research, um, and and they did the work. Uh, and actually, there's a lot of parallels to UFO um, studies too that I can talk to later. So but, you were uh, a pioneer. It, well, yeah, yeah, I was, and uh, it was very exciting and. Uh, uh, just as a side, you know, back in the 80s, they were talking about, you know, global climate change and how we had 40 years to do something about it and we needed to get going. And here it is 40 years later and we haven't done what they've done and therefore, you know, 
like you people out on the West Coast are, are dying of high heat. Uh, but anyway, one of the points of it was that I w we were doing a study on environmental epidemiology. And epidemiology is the science of looking at the statistics and prevalence of a particular um, like disease, usually or illness. And um, uh, the, they had the novel idea of using it to environmental studies. So the idea is instead, you know, instead of saying, okay, we know there's pollution here and it's making people sick, we would look at where people were getting sick and say, well, maybe there's something here toxic that's causing them to get ill. And the most famous one of this, of course, is Love Canal in New York. Uh, where uh, a lot of kids were getting leukemia, et cetera, and they grew, why are these kids getting leukemia? And they found out that the, the town was built on top of a toxic waste area. Um, and so the same thing can be applied to uh, ufology in that, uh, you know, maybe instead of just trying to find, you know, uh, stories about people who have seen things, et cetera, is just use a, uh, a scientific research uh, data analysis uh, approach of, looking at um, where the things are cited and then maybe being able to interpret from that uh, uh, where uh, where the concentrations are and what, what might be driving them, that sort of thing. And so when Cheryl started doing her her column, doing adding statistics to it, um, <laughs> we had a scientist friend that was interested in it. And, one, as a research librarian, I'm always interested in how do you find information? How do you help people find information about these things? I thought, well, you know, you did this study for like New York State. So, you know, this could be applied to the whole country. And of course, I didn't realize what I was saying at the time because <laughs> it right. led to <laughs> multi-year effort to get all of this done. Uh, you know, a cute story that goes with that was um, it was in late uh, fall of 2015. We'd already had a, uh, a retired uh, physics slant uh, uh, astronomy professor, uh, Dr. Gordon Spear, encouraged us to dive deeper and to do more, more uh, county study, so to speak. Particularly, uh, since New York was my beat, he wanted to know something about certain counties in the Hudson Valley. But the bottom line was between what he had said to us and what these old-time uh, MUFON directors in New York State had said to us was that uh, there were there were clusters we identified that nobody knew about because we mm -hmm. simply added county data to the sighting information, a, a mass of it. Okay. Right. And uh, so we were in our favorite pub one night staring across a couple of pints and uh, we said, you know, wow, look at all the cool stuff we found, you know, and then the question came up, what would happen if we did the whole country? You know, and we, I mm -hmm. think we stared at each other for another 10 minutes because we realized it was probably going to take a year. Uh, it took 18 months to do that first book because we really didn't know what we were doing. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of work with cleaning up the data to make it usable. And well, we did things we knew how to do. We, we didn't yeah. things we did then that took us a month to do or a month and a half to do. I can do in a day or two now. Yeah. You know? It seems like such a natural fit for Linda to jump into doing a desk reference as a librarian. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's such a natural Yep, Linda. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the things I learned as, as a uh, librarian is that I, I get these uh, uh, new librarians, you know, fresh in their career right out of library school. And uh, this was, you know, when the internet was coming, actually before the internet, but we had access to databases online, et cetera, and uh, uh, some internet. And, uh, uh, you know, 
I, I, I would show them how, you know, they would get a question and they'd start getting on the computer trying to find the answer. And I would turn around and pull out a book and say, here it is. So, you know, so the well, secret, <laughs> yeah, because sometimes things are better in books or are more easily found, you know. Um, we all use phone books a lot. They were very handy things to have. And how many times now in your life you said, I just wish I had a phone book, you know, yes. uh, instead yes. after find things online. But uh, I'd like to just mention how I got into UFOs. Um, when yes, I was, that's what I want to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up in Cleveland, I had a, uh, when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend who had a twin brother and, uh, uh, he saw a UFO come off of Lake Erie and he was just right out of the Navy. And so he knew that that was not an airplane because he was, you know, trained in identifying aircraft, et cetera. And, uh, uh, the air force took him aside and talked to him. And by the end of it, he was told he was not supposed to discuss this with anyone. This was back in the, the late 1960s. Um, they were deliberately hush hushing it. Yeah. He was deliberately told not to talk about it anymore. And when I was in uh, in D.C., they had an organization called the International Fordian Organization uh, based on uh, Charles Ford, who was a scientist who wrote a book of the damned or uncomfortable scientific information that people like, try to, you know, pretend never happens, like when it rains frogs and that kind of thing. And so they would have this, this was, of course, pre-web. And so if you wanted to learn about things, you had to get together at conferences and bring in speakers. And, and uh, that was the way that you found information. And they they would uh, one of the things they some of it was talking about the pyramids or you know uh, uh, but some of it was also they brought in uh, UFO researchers and in fact I got to see John Mack and mm-hmm. and Bud Hopkins and a bunch of famous people and so I got interested in it that way so uh, when Cheryl started getting more into it I already had a background in it. Uh, well, it must one, have been really electric to be going to these conferences and meeting these. For these other pioneers, you know, who are willing. Well, to I did time. Too. I didn't really realize they were pioneers. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, when you're in the middle of something and it's new, you don't, you know, think, right. oh wow, I got to be, you know. Uh, I, I but, remember being at a conference with Richard in San Francisco with Doc Vallee, and that was like mm-hmm. memorable, very yeah. memorable. Called angels, angels and aliens. Uh, but one of the things too that has been throughout my career and through UFOs is that as a librarian, when I got my diploma, they said, you know, one of your your professional ethics and responsibilities as a librarian is you fight censorship always. You know. Well, we need you now in social media. <laughs> well, exactly. So that's one of the things that's, that's been going on. That re- I read uh, Richard Dolan's book after Disclosure. And uh, that really, you know, the, the censorship that was going on and, and, you know, the fact that they would ruin people's lives and careers, et cetera. And, uh, and, you know, we got a little bit paranoid during our writing of our book because occasionally there would be, you know, like strange cars out front sitting for hours. It's like, you know, all right, whatever, you know. Um, I, I mean, even I even told some of the priests at the school, you know, if I disappeared, you know, here, here, oh my goodness. see what's going on. Uh, but, yeah, the censorship is really outrageous. It's still going on, obviously. And, um, uh, you know, I think that that's one of my real interests in, in the field is that, is that we need to not only look at what the UFOs are, but how the UFOsology is a growing field like environmentalism and uh, 
you know, right now there are no people with UFO degrees. You, anybody says, well, what's your expertise? Well, I, you know, you have a degree in UFO studies. Does you tell me where they're offering one and I'll go. Right. Out. Exactly. Yeah, so, so um, this is really fascinating. We're coming up at the bottom of the hour. And when we return, I'd love to hear more in depth of what exactly is the work that you're doing. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is called 75 Years of Seeing Flying Saucers. What, if anything, have we learned? And our guests are Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa. And we will return after the break. funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So look, you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict, you can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so... I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is gonna be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still gonna be your neighbors. 
and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy, and Aneta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is Kinthea and Keith Morgan standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who really, really wanted to be here, and his his monitor died. So we stepped in. I'm not Richard. I, can, I can't pretend to be Richard, but we have wonderful guests, and we're going to continue exploring this topic. And Keith is uh, very knowledgeable around uh UFOs, UAPs, so I I think this will be a lively show. So our guests tonight, Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller-Costa, and we've just been delving into what them into the UFO world, so to speak, and I'm really wanting to understand just exactly what is it you're doing when you, you mentioned, Cheryl, earlier about statistics, and if you would give me a sense of what exactly is what you produce well okay there's two approaches to this um we're doing something called observational science uh it's not like we can set up an experiment and measure something that way we have to do it by observational measurements and uh so uh what we what started to do uh this is back in 2015 uh we started to measure the phenomena Okay, and up until now, nobody done that. Uh, it was always about case studies and one particular event and uh, measuring just what went on with that event. Uh, and uh, nobody actually sat down and started looking at the bigger dynamics of the overall phenomena. And uh, Linda came to the idea of uh, why don't we do, and this is a loose sense, a census of UFO sightings and get the bigger, the, the bigger numbers. Yes, it was brilliant. And uh, she, she pressed that issue. Um, so we kind of agreed to trying to do this uh, in, on that October night in that uh, pub. And we started uh, refining how to clean up the data and things like this and made plans to download the data fresh on New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's morning uh, in 2016 and start working on the material. And that's how it got started. Now we've looked at, you know, the early, the first book really uh, looked at things like uh, um, how many of them in their locations and states and, uh, and to some degree major cities and major counties, that type of thing, gathering that kind of scale of information. We measured it by month, that type of thing. And uh, that was the early, those were the early measurements. And from that, we started learning things like uh, how to say this, uh, uh, that, you know, like everybody used to knee jerk, you know, you mentioned uh, looking at UFOs and an amount that might be in a state and everybody knee jerks and says, oh, no, it's because of the population. You know, are a lot of UFO sightings in major metropolitan areas or large population areas. But we we discovered that that was not the only driver. 
And with the whole, by the time we got five years later and coming up with the new book, the, the, the 2001 to 2020 book, uh, we discovered that there were five drivers and five influencers to UFO sighting reports. So before you go into those five items, uh, you sent me some images that were, have to do with UFO sightings in New Mexico because that's where Richard lives. And is that an example of what you're talking about, how you were gathering the statistics? And Well, actually, that, that, that graphic um, is something literally we learned how to do the last couple of weeks. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's relatively new to, a method of displaying the information. Um, but what, ultimately, one of the things we wanted to be able to do uh, in our first book, the 2017 book, we were able to break things down United States down to a state and down to the county level, okay? And uh, in the last five years, the thing we really wanted to be able to do is get down to the uh, local level. Now, doing it with cities was our goal, but we found that doing it by zip code or doing it by county were the two best ways to do it for the time being. And, and was this something that, like, Linda was very, like, astute in how to organize this material? Well, Linda was very has had a I, I'm going to say a, a I don't like the term guiding hand. Um, she gave very firm direction how we approach the data. I supervised. She she literally <laughs> supervised, uh, and she gave me direction because there were there, there were questions that I had about how how to organize the information. Uh, I was a good analyst, but. Uh, librarians are information managers and they know how to organize it. So I was constantly taking guidance from her and how we approach this. Uh, the first, like I said, the first book we focused on uh, shapes to some degree, states and counties uh, on another level. And those were the things we measured at that time. Now, over the, the intervening time from 2017, when we released that first book and end of uh, in 2020 when we were all locked down uh and we were planning to do the second book uh we we gave ourselves uh, the benchmark of coming up with a different set of measurements and we have things like measurement by the hour of the sighting okay things like that and um that told us a lot that told us a huge amount plus uh, there was another colleague here in new york state that gave us additional information he was using our data and he, he was researching a different leg of it than we were and uh so there's been a, a lot of interest in the fact that we're revealing you know a lot of people said to us why why aren't you doing field studies i said our answer back was we don't want to study a single ant we are looking at the ant hill well in terms of the ant hill i'm curious like what hours where most of the sightings happening and what areas like where would you have your highest possibility of seeing a ufo okay now that, see that's the thing um it, okay you want to people want to know where the where the hot spot where, where's the most ufos and okay. and the time of day well don't go there yet don't go okay. there yet um the time of day is actually pretty standard across the country amazingly enough um, uh, th that's a phenomenon nobody knew occurred, but the, the idea of the most sightings, um, well, actually, uh, do you want to do it by state? Do you want to do it by county? 
makes you a difference. You tell me. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, uh, California is the number one state in the country. Of course, everybody, uh, like I said before, knee jerks and said, well, it's population, but there's more to it than that. Um, the number two state is Florida. The number three state is uh, Texas. Okay. And that's been pretty solid for like the last uh, six or seven years. The, um, the top 10 reads off something like this. California is number one. Florida is number two. Texas is number three. Uh, currently, Washington State is the number four state in the country. New York State is number five. Pennsylvania is number six. Arizona is in a funny position. It has been consistently number seven for the past seven years. It's, it's weird. I would have thought it was higher in that list. Oh, well, it is in a way. Uh, well, Arizona, it's the state is number seven. Maricopa County, where Phoenix is, is the number two county in the country of over uh, of like 3,200 counties. Oh, okay. so the county reference that can actually be different than the state reference. Oh, drastically. Uh, we got, we got a hate, we got a lot of hate mail when the, the first book came out from people in Nevada, because Nevada only ranked about number 26 or something like that at the time in the first book. In oh fact, yeah. Her, well, they're area 51. They must've been really ticked off. Yeah. And well, the second book uh, that we just released in May, uh, they're number 24, but, um, that, that everybody got upset with us about it. And we started talking to people and I said, well, do you report them? No, we see them all the time. I said, do you report them? Well, no, because we see them all the time. And, and so the, the, the mindset we had to take is that if you don't report them, we can't count them. You know, right. this is the so big, has there been a campaign deal. to get them to record them? We've said it enough. And George Knapp out in uh, Las Vegas, uh, KLAS, he's been very good about making sure he put the word out there. But the bottom line is uh, county, you know, what, what might be a hot, give me an example. Los Angeles County is the number one county in the country. It's got more sightings than 39 individual states. Maricopa That's County, amazing. Maricopa it's, County, Arizona, essentially Phoenix, um, is the number two county, and they have more sightings than 36 individual states. Okay. And, so I guess and the, counties really is the best way to look at it if you want to find the hot spot. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, if you want to look at the number one city, uh, currently that happens to be Phoenix, you know, Phoenix, Arizona. Even though the state is number seven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll give you the top 10 on cities right now. Phoenix, New York City, Las Vegas is number three. Okay, Los Angeles City is number four. Seattle, Washington is number five. Portland, Oregon is number six. Chicago is number seven. Tucson, Arizona is number eight. Um, San, uh, uh, San Diego is number 10. The, the number nine slot was filled by an unspecified. Remember I told you some people don't fill out, you know, uh, what their city is. And that's driven by, we had to put a category in our database for every single state, uh, unknown County, all 50 states got, were assigned unknown, the term unknown County with their counties. And then the, anything that was unspecified where there was no reference to a city, we, we dropped them in this catch all, uh, bucket of the unknown County. So and so nationally, uh, the unknown county, uh, unknown uh, city comes in uh, number nine in the country. Uh, San Diego is number 10. 
Houston's number 11, Denver's number 12, Albuquerque's, okay, New Mexico, okay, uh, Albuquerque's number 13, Orlando Ford is 19, four, uh, 14, that you get the idea. And in the okay. book, in the book we publish, um, like I said, we had 3,200 counties um, uh, in the United States are county-like entities. Some cities are the equivalent to a county. And so uh, we had 3,000 78 counties reporting. Wow. And, and we that's had vast. Yeah, for over the 20 over the 20 years of the study uh-huh. and uh-huh. Uh, 20, uh, 20 it's, uh, it's the change I don't know it's like 20 uh, 20.4 uh, 20 I'm sorry I'm going to say it wrong 20,000 cities or municipalities reported UFO sightings. Wow. Um, now I'll give you one more statistic because we're doing zip, measuring zip code information. Okay, there are forty-one thousand six hundred zip codes in the country. Okay, eighteen thousand four hundred of them reported UFOs. That's unbelievable, and I had no idea there were that many zip codes. It just blew me away. One thing I wanted to point out is that I know that the the shows like the last 75 years of, of UFOs and, you know, one of the thing people question, well, why don't you go back to like 1940? And it's like, yeah, that would be nice, but we don't have the information to count, you know, that there just wasn't the, the reporting or the gathering of the information. And uh, it, in the, uh, the new book, I think he did. He, she made an attempt to try to to show something, you know, for for uh, uh, the historic trends. But it really comes down to is that you know this is 2021, and you know what happened in 1947 at Roswell is all very interesting. But it's long ago, and we need to focus on what's going on now. You know, a lot of people. And, and wasn't there even sort of ghost ships back in the cowboy days? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so, we're always surprised how haven't people watched ancient aliens? You know, I mean, all these these types of things are discussed on that show. People really should check it out if they're interested. In now, it. something some a lot of people say to me when they hear Los Angeles County is the number one county, and they say, "What?" They're they're thinking the city when they say this. Well, well, wait a minute, they got all that light pollution out there. But if you go up into the hills you're above the city lights and it changes the dynamic of what you can see. The other thing that's interesting is Los Angeles city, Los Angeles County. um, They've had UFO sightings out there since the 1880s, strange lights flying up and down those canyons long before we had human power, uh, human flight, you know? So um, the phenomena is not what people think it is. Okay. Right. And do you think there's a lot more to it? Kind of sort of seems to suggest there there may be a base there if they're going in and out of those canyons. Well, one of the things is that is that uh, there seems to be a trend of sightings. And remember, sightings are not necessarily the count of how many UFOs there are; it's just how many people have seen them. You know, and so I mean, you can have you know ten thousand people see the same UFO, so that's one UFO, but it's ten thousand sightings. Uh, But there. There is a trend of uh, they're clustered around water, and so there's a lot of suspicion that there's underground water uh, bases off in the Pacific and um, uh, around the Great Lakes. There's a lot of sightings, uh, Hudson River, um, the East Coast. Uh, so there seems to be a, uh, I mean, you've got to think there's a lot of ocean that'd be a good, really good place to hide. 
you know, people say, used to say, uh, people say to me, well, how come Florida's got more sightings than Texas? Texas has twice the population, okay? But they have 400 miles worth of coastline, and Florida has 12,000 miles of coastline. <laughs> well, so oh, that I'm, so, I'm sorry, 1,200. Really I mean, point 12, then about the, the, the water aspect of it that I don't think many people think about. Curious, like you brought up that. So 10,000 people are seeing one sighting. So as you were putting all together these statistics, then you also had to figure out, well, were they seeing the same no, craft? We didn't, we didn't go there. We didn't, okay. we didn't make that judgment call. So you but, just but you, counted you do it as to, reports? I mean, like if there were 10,000 people, was it counted as 10,000 reports counted as 10,000 UFOs? Or how do you no, do that? No, no, no. We just took raw data. First thing that people ask me, well, what did the sighting information say? We kept city, state, date, time, shape. We got rid of the narrative. You know, there's always a write-up with the, with the, with the sighting. We didn't care about the write-up. We only cared about, cared about raw data. Um, so, yeah, there might be some uh, duplication of things where, where there's a sighting and a lot of people see it. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. There was um, in 2008, April 16, 2008, um, the, normal, the normal amount of sightings nationally on a day-to-day basis is about 23 per day, okay, average. Every now and then, there's a spike, okay? And, and in 2008, there was a spike on April 16th. There were 60 in the United States uh, instead of 23. Um, and uh, I dug down, I, I did a, a report for that day alone. I can break the data out like this. And most of the states, it was onesie twosies, okay, for that day. Um, Indiana had 25. This is a state that averages maybe two a week, okay? So, and, but was that 25, 25 different incidents or 25 reports? Well, uh, well, as we dug down into it, we found out that those 25 were split between 12 municipalities in two neighboring counties. So there was a lo- it was a local flap, so to speak. I'm mean, gonna think of it as like the Phoenix Lights, you know? A lot of people in, in, in Phoenix saw those. Right. You know, but they all saw the same thing, but there were also a lot of people. I'm just saying, when you look at the, the data, that anytime, you know, there's, there's, there's a well-known phrase, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And, you know, I meant the, we live in the, the age of big data. I meant this is what we're complaining about, the tech companies and everything that, you know, every time you Google something, somebody is taking that statistic and using it to sell advertising, you know, whatever. Well, it's the same thing with UFO data is that it can be sliced and diced lots of different ways. And it just, it really depends on how you manipulate it. And right now, all we can manipulate is the sightings because, you know what? The government's not collecting this information, or if they are, they're not telling us that. So we're working not with sharing. what we've got. Yeah, you know, that's the point. In fact, Linda made, a, I'm going to call it a rant uh, in the preface for the, uh, the new book. Uh, we refer to it as the pink book. That's the 20, 2001 to 2020 book. Uh, she she went on a little rant, and one of the sentences she used is, here we are five years later from the first book, and we're still doing the government's job. 
And she made a good point. Why isn't why aren't why aren't why isn't the gov- the the force and the resources of the United States government being used? With the first book, um, Rich Hoffman, he's a very well known investigator uh, out of Alabama, and he made the point. He worked uh, he he's a uh, he works for the Army, and he made a point. He says to do what Sharon Linda did, I would need a staff of about fifteen to twenty people, well funded. Okay. And Linda made a good point with the new book, which is here we are doing this again with a uh, with a, a one researcher living on pension and and uh, and Social Security and the librarian being underpaid. You know, I mean, you know, right, right. we've done stuff well, that or, you shouldn't be able to do with the budget we've got. Yes, it makes me wonder if they're really not tracking it, not sharing, or. They're not tracking it because they don't want us to know. So why should they put any energy to knowing? I, well, my theory, like, you know, this recent UFO report that came out that everybody's talking about. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the government and, and people made such an effort to repress this information back in the sixties and the seventies. And when you think of, of, you know, and this is my psychology background coming in. When you, when you look at the people involved at this point, the people working in the Pentagon are several generations away from the people who made those decisions. And so it's like, first they repress the study of it and then they forget that they're the ones who repressed it. And so you've got the people working there now and says, oh, well, UFOs, that's all a joke. Well, yeah, that's because the government used the ridicule as a mechanism to repress people's interest in this because they didn't want to share it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very, anytime you, any, I mean, human beings are very complex. That's probably why the aliens are studying us, you know, if that's what they're doing. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, I, I, we, we that the report. It's like I wasn't expecting much of it because it's like I think that the people working there right now really have. There's no institutional memory anymore. Thank it's, you. It's gone. So you think it's more by default and not deliberate. Well, yeah. Incompetence. You Incompetence. Know? Incompetence. Uh, <laughs> in 1968, Dr. Condon's report to Congress told there was nothing to be gained by studying UFOs. That they're not a threat. That they were not a threat. There was nothing being gained. So money, there was no money being allotted. Congress did not allocate money somebody to study it for in any of the agencies in the government. No, we're not talking the Air Force. We're talking other research agencies in the government, academia applying for grants to study it. None of that happened. And to be honest with you, when they were people were telling me, oh, what are they going to reveal? I said, you know. I'm of the belief, having worked with the government, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. We're both former government contractors, okay? <laughs> yeah. And so the bottom line is uh, I, I told a lot of people on radio shows right up until that report, I said, I think the government knows less about it than we think they do. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of tend to think that it's more deliberate rather than incompetence. I think they do know, but they just don't want us to know. They I know. think they, they probably know some, but I don't think the organization and organized study of it is there, except in very small pockets. I mean, look at, okay, the, the U, uh, uh, X-Files, you know, it's classic. It's like, you show your interest in UFOs and the government, you get an office in the basement, you know, and you got to remember, D.C. is is a culture, it's a, it, it attracts 
intelligent, ambitious people from all over the country go to D.C. because there the currency is power. Well, you don't get power by advocating things that people are going to laugh at you for. And that's the same in, in government as anywhere else. And in, for that matter, in government, you know, there's, there's the, the federal appointees. And then there's the federal bureaucrats. And then there's the contractors. You know who does a lot of the actual work? It's the contractors. The federal right. bureaucracy has meetings. And the, the, the federal employees, uh, you know, to deal with the press and the public relations. So uh, that's like I also had a, a rant about this whole UAP thing, you know. Well, that's another classic Washington strategy. It's like, well, let's change the acronym for it because that way it looks like we're doing something. Oh, like, well, we, we're, we're Mike and more modern. We're paying attention instead of calling it UFOs. We're going to call it UAPs. And, and so, they didn't want the band. Yeah, yeah that's a lie. Really? Do, do you think that's going to fly, UAP? Do you think no. that's going to stick? I, I think it's laughable. I think it's pretentious. Well, I, it was, well, the other thing was they were trying to get away from the, the stigma. Um, uh, one of the things that goes on with this whole, uh, like, when the pilots out there in the Nimitz and things like this, this has been going on for about 20 years. They've been actively seeing these things. Of course, the pilots were told not to report these things, okay? And when they started reporting them, the goofy thing was is the, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of little compartments of defense intelligence agencies, okay, that do research on things. That any of those things that looked like a Russian, uh, Russian aircraft or had a Russian insignia or a Chinese, they would have been all over it. But because it was something anomalous, all these, all these research agencies avoided it. There was a stigma like everybody else. Oh, we don't want to touch it. We don't want to report it. Somebody would call us crazy. Well, the, the, the intelligence agencies felt that way as well, and they didn't want to touch it. So what we ended up doing was Navy intelligence finally stepped up to it since the Air Force wasn't doing it. Navy intelligence stepped up to it. And, of course, they formed this UAP task force type of thing. And um, the funny, goofy thing is, what were they whining about in that report? 140 sightings that they've had in 20 years. I got 167,600 and 32, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, when is somebody going to talk to us, you know? So the bottom line is, is that I think they were troubled by the same stigma and I know you're going to break, so we're going to let you go. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> you're listening to the other side of midnight. Our guests tonight are Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa. And this is Kinthea with Keith Morgan standing in for Richard C. Hoagland. And we will return after the break. Okay, almost. <laughs> Thank you. 
side of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Our guests tonight are Cheryl Costa and Linda Miller Costa, and they put out this UFO desk reference, um, and they've been telling us about it. United States of America 2001 to 2015 UFO sightings desk reference. And while we were on break, my friend showed me uh, a report that was on TikTok about the U.S. Embassy opening the fourth largest U.S. Embassy in 2004, and there was some suggestion that they were doing this because in Haiti because they wanted the iridium for the ships that they're building. I don't know. I, that was just like came floating through. I'm passing it on. thought it was an interesting point. Uh, co-hosting with me tonight is Keith Morgan, and I want to bring him in. I know Cheryl and Linda want to tell us a little bit more about drivers and influences. What does that mean? <laughs> and Keith, jump in anytime. And Cheryl, what does that mean, drivers and influences, or Linda? Well, okay, we've we figured out there were primary drivers, okay, and one of them is population. Another one, and Linda discovered this one, uh, temperate weather. Sighting patterns on a monthly basis are different in northern states than they are for middle states, and uh, that, and even more different if you get down to the deep south states. There's, there's like almost three different climate kind of uh, uh, differences in the monthly patterns. Um, the, other, uh, the other drivers are leisure time, 
hours of darkness, and observer access to broadband. Now, that's the drivers. The secondary influencers, not every state gets these secondary influencers, but proximity to large bodies of water, proximity to toxic ecosystems, proximity to geological faults, and high visibility media reports. And then there's a, a fifth one called the... Wait, gener- wait, wait, before you go on, are you sure. suggesting that the UFOs may be um, associated with toxic... Uh, toxicity to the environment there are in these extreme, particular areas? The, uh, Thomas W. Conwell, a colleague of ours here in New York, uh, has correlated uh, that they seem to haunt, haunt's not the right word, loiter around our dead gas fields, dead oil fields, dead mining towns, brown fields, polluted lakes, polluted rivers. Uh, there's a predominance of that kind of uh, UFO activity. And one of the things we keep hearing from experiencers, okay, if any experiencers you talk to, they keep coming back and saying, ET told us to take care of our planet. Uh, heck, heck, those kids in South Africa, they told those people, take care of your mm-hmm. planet, you know. So, so it's uh, like they're, big they're doing studies or something of that area, and they're saying, you know, look what you're doing here. Are they bringing yeah. attention to it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they keep bringing it up. and So they're not causing it. They're just bringing attention to it. They're bringing attention to it, and it seems to be really high in their agenda. You know, and people say to us, they've been asking us, why suddenly are they really doing all this high visibility uh, flybys with the Navy and all this other stuff? And maybe they are trying to one of two things. Either they have made contact with the government and say, you tell your people or we will, or, which I doubt, uh, or um, what they may be trying to do is establish contact with our planet and basically say, you guys have missed your tipping point and you're in real trouble. Look what's happening out in the, uh, out in the West, in the Pacific Northwest, you know, with the, with the, the record heat wave going on. Uh, we're in serious trouble and maybe they want to help us because uh, we go much further without making some major changes. There won't be any coming back from this. My mm-hmm. take and, on that, hi guys, this is Keith Morgan, Discovered Hi, Keith. Uh, my take on that, as I think you were right with the first one, I think told us back in the Eisenhower days, then um, they gave us a deadline, and they probably gave every government organization in the, in the planet that same deadline. And I think we're rapidly approaching it, and these guys are now having to uh, come up with something to get out of the hole that they dug by lying to us in the first place. Um, I've had personal sightings and personal encounters. And I got into this because uh, I worked for ABC News and Phil Class and Stanton Friedman were guests on Nightline. And I told um, Phil Class when I saw him in the hall about my sighting in high school. And this man decides he's going to belittle me by saying, oh, you saw a spaceship from Alpha Centauri. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to research this, and I'm either going to prove him right or I'm going to prove him wrong. And at this point in time, I have proven him completely wrong by accidentally discovering the mathematics in the Sidonia region where the face is that proves that that face and the other structures are 100% artificial. Somebody built them. So all of the stuff that we've been going through, I've been researching it. I've been keeping up with it. And Ted Koppel actually gave me the opportunity to do two shows. One was on the Phoenix Lights, 
and the other one was on Project Disclosure, Stephen Greer's uh, project. Both of them got upstaged. One of them, the Phoenix Lights, got upstaged because the host of this show that's supposed to be here decided to tell everybody on Art Bell that Nightline was going to do a show about the Phoenix Lights, and I didn't tell them, don't tell anybody. So everybody jumped on the, the story the next day like it had happened that day, and it was a three-month-old story. It's like people don't listen to Art Bell. Anyway, that fell through because of that, because the executive producer, Tom Patek, said, we're not going to do the show now. I said, why? Because everybody else has done it. And I'm like, when does that stop Nightline? But And the other one, which was uh, May 9th, 2001, Project Disclosure at the National Press Club, um, that got upstaged by 9-11. And that was in itself um, another one that was going to probably been a really good show. But the Phoenix Lights, when that got, uh, when that came forward and everybody jumped on it, certainly, suddenly the Merlin National Guard came forward and said, oh, uh, yeah, we were on maneuvers in Phoenix and we were dropping flares as part of Operation Snowbird. And that's when my jaw hit the ground because they love telling you the truth because they know you don't know what the truth is. Now, what they told the public was Operation Snowbird is oh, when we're moving planes between two Air Force bases during the winter, that's Operation Snowbird. But I knew about Operation Snowbird long time before that, and it had nothing to do with moving planes between Air Force bases. Operation Snowbird is an offshoot of Operation Red Light. Operation Red Light is the operation where we're flying extraterrestrial vehicles either recovered in crashes or given to us by extraterrestrials. Operation Snowbird is the operation to cover up the fact that they are flying these craft. So when they said they were dropping flares as part of Operation Snowbird, yeah, they could say that with a straight face because they're telling you the truth. They were covering up the fact that at 8 o'clock that night, a huge craft flew over Phoenix, and at 10 o'clock, they started dropping flares to start their cover-up. And that's what happened there. So I've been researching this stuff for since uh, class and uh, Stanton Friedman were on nightline but i know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are not alone we've never been alone and we never will be alone in this universe because this stuff on mars is absolutely 100 percent real because math doesn't lie and it's simple simple geometry and and uh, i'm when you mentioned the math keys i'm curious how the work that uh, Cheryl and Linda have been doing lines up with, with what you're saying, how they are observing it from their end of the statistics. You guys still there? Yeah, we're, we're listening, waiting for an opening. Oh. <laughs> well, I just gave you an opening. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, one of the two points about that, um, when we were talking about our influencers, we, one of them is called the generational effect. And uh, th- that applies to places like Los Angeles County and most certainly applies to Maricopa County, Phoenix area. Um, what happens is people had a really remarkable event. Lots of people saw it. It got talked about. And what happens is people hear mom and dad or grandpa and grandma talking about this thing. And what seems to happen is, is wow, if I look up regularly, maybe I'll see something. 
Okay, and there's plenty to see. So uh, getting people to look up is a big deal. Same thing with Los Angeles. They've had this stuff going on out there, like I said earlier, uh, uh, strange lights up and down the, the canyons since the 1880s. So we've seen newspaper uh, reports of that stuff. And so they had the Battle of L.A. in February of uh, 1942. And again, people, they, they're talking to it to this day. Heck, they do reenactments of it out there, you know. Uh, a society of people that do this. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to be said there. And Keith, there was something you said there that really got my uh, caught my eye. Um, you know, the upstage thing. Um, yeah, the, you know, there's been talk for a long time that the CIA said that they had, uh, they, they've commented different operatives that said, that, oh, they've got paid people and high levels in our media establishment that are in a position to squelch things or shift the, the emphasis of the stuff. And uh, yeah, when you told, said about uh, 9-11 covering something up, uh, yeah, this kind of stuff happens all the time. I'm a journalist, I see it all the time. And uh, where something else gets promoted to draw attention away from a certain news story. Lately, the last couple of years with the Navy stuff, this is, this has got everybody's attention. I've got people talking to me from, from newspapers that I would have never dreamed they would have an open conversation with me. Well, you know, but just before nine 11, Donald Rumsfeld said, there's $2.6 trillion missing from the military budget and we don't know where it went. And then shortly thereafter, 9-11, and everybody forgot what Rumsfeld said. And I'm sitting here going, was that just a diversion to get everybody focused elsewhere? And then the rumor is, is that the documents that could have proved where that money went to were housed in the World Trade Centers. So, yeah, I think they do this stuff deliberately. I'm having an issue with um, Google Earth, okay? There's the Badlands Guardian that was discovered by this lady in 2010, or I should say rediscovered because they knew it was there since 1937. And I brought it up to Ancient Aliens in 2018 at the Baltimore Alien Con, and they had no clue that it even existed. And even Eric Von Danigan went, where is this? That is this. And then they did an episode about it, even though Travis Taylor and David Childers Hattress said, uh, Taylor said, oh, you can curve anything, He's talking about the Morgan curve. And Hattress said, oh, uh, I think that's just a natural formation, talking about the Badlands Guardian. Anyway, in the episode they did about the Badlands Guardian, oh, uh, we think this is artificial. And they did a 180-degree flip. But the thing is, is that Google Maps, somebody moved the location. If you put in the search for Badlands Guardian, they moved it to some bogus location. And then I got Google to to move it back saying this is deceptive and deceiving, and they moved it back immediately. And then I had comments along with other people's comments about this location. And now, again, it's changed. You put in Badlands Guardian and – it's not there anymore. It's pointing someplace else. So somebody's trying to cover up all of this stuff. Oh, I, I'm 100% with you. Um, I've reached out to major news organizations. I'll give an example, USA Today. They did a wonderful piece on May uh, and our data 
um, in five upstate New York newspapers in the past uh, week and a half. Okay, a front page story with a uh, with a page two follow up with the rest of the story kind of thing. Huge article. Talked they talked to me extensively and they talked to our state director Sam Felvo. But my pitch to the the USA Today management uh, editorial management was. I've got the data. We've got the data for the entire United States. There's a bigger story here. No, all they would do is tell a regional story. My theory is that the reason they're not paying attention to our data is it, it's a, it's an it is a suppression that they that it's just it's frightening in its implications, and you know. They think that they're oh well there were 140 that the the pilot saw, and you know 100 what is it 167,000 167,000 I can't remember the numbers she remembers the numbers is is just uh, is just too much it's, it's mind blowing because when you multiply it out by all the ones that aren't being reported that the people aren't do filling out the forms et cetera I mean it is it's millions of people on this planet and this is just the United States I mean this is going on. In every country, it's not just it's just not in the U.S. And I think that like it, it comes back again to censorship. You know that there's this very important phenomena going out that can change the whole paradigm of how we look at reality and what our purpose is and what our responsibilities are. And it's just it's being suppressed and it's being censored and it's just mind-boggling about. I mean, I, I joke about how well the federal government's not not um, uh, capable of doing really, you know, coordinated stuff, and, and it's true to a certain extent. But this is international. I mean, it, it's worldwide that 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 some. I don't know if it's somebody or. I mean, I try not to get into the whole conspiracy theories thing, but it does seem very suspicious that that the newspapers are still following the orders that they were given back in the 1970s to not publish this when the people that are doing the newspapers weren't even alive then, you know? So I, I, it's, it's really is fascinating. When I started pitching my column back in 2013, I went to upwards of uh, 10 different newspaper editors. We still had that many papers up here in upstate New York. And I got laughed out of the office, chased out of the office, escorted to the door by security, you know, that kind of thing. And finally, uh, an editor on a, a weekly up here in New York uh, uh, invited me over to the office. So we sat down and had a cup of coffee together and we had a long talk about UFOs. And he was similar age to me and had read a lot of the stuff from the 60s and 70s books, you know, guys like Frank Edwards, things like that. And um, uh he said, I'll try you out for a month. Now, we kept one of the pitches we made to these newspaper editors when we wanted to write a weekly column on this. Some of the editors came back, well, maybe we should do one on all those paranormal things. I said, no, I'm not. I'm, you're going to dilute it. I'm trying to sell one particular issue here, and I'm telling you, it's going to be popular. And it'll be, it'll be, especially if we do it on the online edition. Okay. And, um, this guy, uh, the editor I pitched, he liked the idea of the online edition, and he didn't have the real estate in the actual print edition because print papers are driven by advertising dollars. So if you don't have the dollars, you don't get the column space. And uh, he told me, I'll try you out for a month. I gave him four articles, 
And he called me up a month later. He said, uh, come on in. We need to talk. He had this very stern voice. I thought, oh, that's it. It's over with. And I walked into the meeting and there were all the columnists were in there and we were coming in there on the big board table and he stopped. I was a little bit late. He stopped, pointed at me and said, there's our rock star. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, you're pulling more page views on the online edition than all of our columnists combined. Six months later, the digital editor who I worked for uh, came to me and said, you have a national audience. They can measure that at the server. Okay. And then at the Christmas party, the, the publisher and this guy stood up and said, hey, she's got an international audience. So we were pulling huge amounts of audience because we treated the story of UFOs very respectfully and very matter-of-factly. My stories read, read like, like you know, the, the burglary down the, down the street or the fire across town or the car accident in, in the next neighborhood. We, we, we treated it with a great deal of respect and very matter-of-factly, like any other story. People are interested in reading her columns. Um, we've collected them all in a book called The UFO Beat. Uh, that's available through Amazon, and it's got all seven years of the columns, and they're 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 short, and they're they're fun reading, and I'm real proud of the job she's done. I know what you mean about how they don't want to cover things. Uh, I used to do presidential elections; we'd go up to Manchester uh, for unilateral or or network transmission, and a guy came in one day and he said, "I'm I'm registered for." being on the ballot for president of the United States. And I said to the producer, I said, are you going to talk to him? You know, he's, he's legit. And he's like, oh, he didn't want to be president. He's just trying to make a statement. And they ignored him. And I'm like, I guess Abraham Lincoln would never become president if they had that kind of a media back then. Right. Yeah. But yeah. This, this is the kind of stuff they do. The media laughed, 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 laugh. They're not laughing anymore. Because the Navy came forward and said, hey, look, we're not messing around. Here's what we got in front of you. But that nine-page report really just stuck in my craw because, oh, we're going we're gonna to deal with 2004 to 2021 because this is where this incident with the UAPTF, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena right. Task Force, is covering, and we're only going to deal with reliable sources. Your pilots were reliable sources back in the past. Yeah, they've been flying circles around our aircraft since we can remember. You know. Yeah, and there was a task force before that. What happened to Blue Book? What happened to Sign? What happened to Grudge? There were task force before that. Where is their paperwork? You didn't go back that far, but you're going to stick with this little little dab. These guys know that they cannot bring out the next generation technology without telling us where it came from. Keith, let me give you a perspective. I interviewed Lou Alessandro a total of three times. One time with a formal interview, uh, he had, uh, I had to do it through the um, uh, Stars Academy people. So they had literally the public relations director for the, to the Stars Academy sitting on the line like a nanny. And I, Lou and I had to kind of play it very straight, okay? But during the course of uh, the conversation, uh, I asked him about, I said, look, you had, I come from a, a, an intelligence background in the military. And I said, you know, you, you have the clearance and the need to know when you were in the ATIP program. And he nodded at, and nodded at me and I said, okay, so 
that meant you had the authority to go go out there and pick open all of these other compartmented reports about UFOs, investigations, crashes, whatever whatever might be out there. And he nodded yes. And I said, okay, I don't want to get into it. But I said, first thing, what's it worth it? Now, if you've ever seen Lou Alessandro do an interview, he's got that very stoic look. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, when I asked him, I said, what's it worth it? His face lit up like a kid on Christmas morning. He said, then he, he looked at me in a big smile, and he said, yeah, it was worth it. Now, so I look at this, especially – two other things you got to remember about this preliminary report. There is another report coming. Okay, Secretary Radcliffe was working on this, and he even told the Fox News people months ago that they were working very hard to declassify certain things. Okay, that should have been declassified a long time ago, point one. Point two, the people on that task force, one, we heard it was only like two or three people working on the project. And three, they've got the clearances and the need to know. They're intelligence people. They've got the clearances and the need to know to be able to pick open all that other stuff that Lou told, you know, indicated was out there. But something else Lou told me, there was such a bad, and this is something Linda can talk to, there was such a bad organizing of the information when somebody did work on some kind of investigation or a crash or something like this back in the day. Um, they didn't file it or categorize it correctly to make it easy to find within their system. Okay. And uh, this is notorious in the government that, the, that they don't, organize their their information so they can like they don't have librarians organizing their information to properly categorize it NASA and that the same be, thing with the face on mars oh yeah oh yeah and hell they lost the tapes for the moon landing you know things like this you know mm -hmm. um so there's all of this goofy stuff there with the fact that they're incompetent um, the UAP task force, I've told several other radio shows this, they have the clearance levels, their intelligence cleared. They have the need to know to go into those compartments. Um, I'm anxious to see what they're going to report in the next full bodied one. I know they gave a classified one to Congress, but there's the other thing, this little preliminary report that it gave. The, the committee chairs for the select committee for the House and the select committee for the Senate on intelligence, it gave those chairs, guys like Rubio and Warner in the Senate, to host congressional hearings. Now, the thing that bothers me about congressional hearings with this, are we going to see a parade of swaggering pilots and form and 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 um, different levels of of um, intelligence spooks coming out there and talking about this thing, or are we actually going to have them and a thing like the citizens hearings that Steve Bassett sponsored back in back in what uh, 2000? I forget. I think it was 13 or eight, whatever. But are we going to get that? Are we going to get some experts? Right now, Linda and I are the only two people who have done statistical research since Project Blue Book 50 years ago. Are they going to have us come and help? Because we know a lot more. I've had talk hosts in the past two weeks say, you guys know more about this than anybody on the planet. You know, so where's this going? I, you know, is it just going to be a government show or are they really going to get the – there's a lot of experts in the UFO community. Yeah, that's a good question. I would like to see them bring out the truth. Just have them rip the Band-Aid off and spill their guts. 
but they're, they're going to play this game as long as they think they got the public bamboozled because well, it, it's their game. They, 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 they're sitting on stuff, that $2.6 trillion. You know what it went to? It went to a base on the moon, a base on Mars, and the TR-3B craft to get us between all three planets. But they're not going to tell us that. And, and even Ben Rich said, oh, we, we could take E.T. home tomorrow. We have the ability to travel amongst the stars. If you've seen it on Star Trek, Star Wars, we've been there, done that, and found it wasn't practical. But he said these things are locked up in black projects so tight that it would take an act of God to get them released. And it would take $2.6 trillion to be able to pull off that kind of black budget to be able to do the things that I think they can do. And well, as a taxpayer, I'm outraged. I think we should yeah. know where our money is going. Yeah, I want to know what, what my money bought. You know? yeah. yeah. Okay, guys, we're about to go into break. So uh, I'd like to th- thank you for being guests on the show. And uh, when we come back from break, uh, Kenthi, I think, has some more questions, but I might be able to then talk about uh, the Verona's incident in uh, 1989, which uh, was really interesting with uh, talking to Coppola about that. And and then the Zimbabwe incident, where these children in both incidents saw these craft, and over 60 children in Zimbabwe saw it. But uh, nobody wants to talk about it. So you're on the other side of midnight, and uh, we'll be back after the break. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. 
talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. The host is uh, Kenthea and myself, Keith Morgan. And our guests are Cheryl, um, Cheryl and uh, Linda. And uh, we're not going to find out more about uh, exactly what they do and um, get their opinions on how all of this is playing out right now because it looks like it's uh, the reports and all of the stuff that's been coming out has been a delaying tactic to keep us from actually seeing what's going on. So Cheryl and uh, Linda, what do you think is actually going on when it comes down to these reports like that? Well, okay. Two things you sort of have to keep in mind. Um, Let's go back to Roswell for a minute. if Roswell occurred like we think it did, okay, and I I say that it occurred because I didn't used to pay attention to Roswell. I really didn't, not till Stanton Friedman um, really did all his research, and I knew Stanton, and uh, he did a wonderful job of researching it. Um, I didn't believe in it, and I even had it skeptical even after I, I, I first knew uh, uh, Stanton. And then I was doing my own story on something, and I discovered a bunch of data from that era. And uh, we had about 750 sightings over a period of four weeks between the middle of June and the middle of July. And I called them up one day and said, hey, this almost looks like a starship down on a hostile planet. It was like they set out the, out, it was like the Galactic Federation sent out the Civil Air Patrol to look for them, you know. And uh, that's what it seemed like to me. So, okay, but here's the deal with Roswell as I look at it. Um, Ten years before Roswell, Orson Welles scared the snot out of the country with his broadcast of War of the Worlds and doing it like a news actuality, okay? And that memory was still very, very strong with people in the government. And they say, my God, this stuff is real. And if we tell mom and pa America this stuff is real, we're going to scare the hell out of them. Okay. And there was that thing of trying to protect us. And then in the 50s, we had the Robinson panel. They were afraid that if we tell people about these things, they're, they're not going to not know who to worship. Maybe it's going to affect our, our view of how we worship, all this kind of stuff. There was a lot of concerns. And so an education program sort of got started. Gene Roddenberry was at the front end of this thing, and I really think he had some support from somebody in the government who was trying to promote the idea we have to educate people. There might be people from outer space. Now think about this. Back in the 40s and 50s, except for uh, the movie um, uh, The Day the Earth Still, 
most alien movies from that era were slimy, bug-eyed monsters. These days, aliens in our fiction, television, radio, uh, you know, television, uh, streaming, whatever, are our most revered characters, uh, Chewbacca and uh, 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 oh, the little, uh, the little, the little Jedi guy, uh, yeah, Yoda, uh, Doctor Who, all this kind of stuff, Mister Spock. Um, people are more comfortable with that. There's statistics to support that. Uh, uh, giving an example, polling data. They used to say around four, 36, maybe 38 percent believed in this stuff, you know, and then 42 to 45 percent. Uh, were on the fence, and 17% said that it's all baloney, togwash, there's no such thing. And a number of, uh, of um, polls from 2012 through to present reflected data. Though now we're seeing that, uh, I hate that term belief number, but uh, that number has grown. But in all of those polls, they found that about 80, 85% believed the government was not being square with us about this topic matter. Now, let's go to that 16 or 17 percent that says no, there's nothing to this. The people who are on the fence are probably going to be okay if they come out with it. But that 16 percent amounts to about 45 million people that uh, up until now have not believed, believed this stuff exists. And they might be a little rattled on it. And I think they're actually trying to move very slowly with the revelations. I know we in the UFO community want to drink from the fire hose of information. But I think they're taking their time to uh, expose the public to it gently because uh, I, think that, I think they are afraid of having uh, a pushback from a certain 16% of the population that they don't go take their kids out in the yard and uh, put a gun to their head because they're afraid the aliens are going to eat them or something. Okay, And that's what their big fear was back in 47. Well, I know that Roswell actually took place because Jesse Marcel – uh, senior told us exactly what took place. Agreed. Uh, Philip J. Corso, Colonel Philip J. Corso, told us what was going on with the technology and his disseminating it into our society through government contractors. And American Computer Company, they came up with the transfer capacitor. They called it TCAP for short. And this thing blows CPUs out the water and it can it can clock terahertz, and our transistors can't even do that. We don't have that kind of technology. And they said, oh, this technology came from uh, Bell Labs. The shopkeeper at Bell Labs was keeping notes of what was going on at the different benches. And what they were doing was they were reverse engineering the technology that came from the crash at Roswell. They said there was enough stuff in those books to release one new object a month for the next 60 years. They said there was liquid memory in there. It was faster than the TCAP. And I'm like, you're doing 12 terahertz, and you're telling me there's something faster than that? This kind of stuff is what goes on behind the scenes. I stood in ABC in the control room watching a spot come through, going to a, our ABC affiliate in Ohio. Stan Myers had come up with a way to convert water to hydrogen using very little current, driving around in a dune buggy with a tank full of water, calculated he could drive from L.A. to New York on 22 gallons of water. Did it go national? No, we're in an energy crisis. Don't you think you should let people know that such, such a technology is possible or, or almost possible and everybody else could have a chance to look at it? See, the problem is if you get too many people looking at these things, 
you're going to have those who are going to tempt, attempt it. And they're going to then say, oh, well, I can improve on this. And then there goes their control of the whole oil gas monopoly of where they said, oh, oil is the new black gold. So oh, now I, I, I got I to argue with you on that point. Um, the story I heard for many years was, oh, uh, if they tell us about the aliens and the technology we have, uh, then it'll wreck oil. Uh, COVID wrecked oil, if you noticed. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, so I mean, we've already seen what happens when oil fails. We have negative $45 a barrel situations. Um, like I said, I think they have to gently bring this into the public sector for both its impact to certain industries and the psychological impact. I mean, right now, the average person cannot go to a therapist, like a, we'll say an experiencer or something like that. The average person cannot go to an, uh, a therapist without getting some really horrendous label because people who are experiencers have been labeled with being a fantasy, you know, that type of thing. And that's not the case. And someone asked me recently, you know, how many experiencers I thought were out there. And I said, well, right now, my best number suggests about 40, 42 million. And the, per, the, the, the host about fell off his chair. He said, where are you getting a number like that? Polling data said that 16% of people have seen a UFO. That doesn't mean they've all reported them. We, we've got a number calculated based on two different polls that said that 16% say they've seen a UFO. And we've got a number that basically says one in 250 people, it varies from state to state, but overall bell curve suggests that one in 250 people reports what they see. Now, if you take our 167,000 number and you crank it by 250, you get a number around 41, 42 million people uh, that didn't report what they see. I didn't report mine. My daughter didn't oh, report I didn't hers. Bunch I've never reported too. But, so, but one thing happened. Let me explain thing. People, when we did our first, by the way, the, the new book is called two, uh, UFO Sightings Desk Reference, uh, United States of America, 2001 to 2020. That's the new hot book. Okay. If you go on Amazon and you look up Cheryl Costa and you look for the UFO sightings books, uh, the two UFO desk references, one's white with a UFO in the front, the other is bright pink, and that's the one you want. It's the modern data. The goofy thing about uh, – I just lost the train of thought there. <clears throat> Bear with me. The goofy thing about, the date, about all of this data is that we have put this data out. And it is making some people wake up and say, my God, this is bigger. Yeah, I've had people come up to me uh, literally at, at, at some kind of a gathering and say, well, you study these things. We, we don't hear about UFOs anymore. There can't be that many of them. And I says, hey, we average, you know, we average uh, 23 a day in the United States, you know. And, of course, then they start jumping on. Well, Cheryl, with your data, did you take out all the kooks, nuts, and crackpots? That's a quote. And I get that consistently. That's the narrative that was pushed by the CIA for the last 50 years. Only kooks, nuts, and uh, crackpots and delusionals report this stuff. And that's not the case. Yeah, well, and, these guys say that they, they don't trust. They're saying they don't trust their own uh, mankind. But yet they get out on the highway every day with all these people and trust them to do the right thing. Or well, they yeah, get they, out there. They threw the, they threw, in that preliminary report, they threw the pilots under the bus. Yeah, you know, and that's wrong. They also threw all of our trillions of dollars of high technology under the bus, and that's mm -hmm. wrong too. 
Well, we now know that the, the Navy filed a patent for an electropropulsion system that lets you fly thousands of miles an hour, not only through the air, but under the water, and make 90-degree right-angle turns at full speed because it negates inertia. And they just happened to file that after they released the, the footage of the gimbal, the go-fast, and the uh, tic-tac. And I'm going, okay, so now the cat's out the bag, and they filed a patent for something that is doing what these craft are doing. So where has this been sitting all this time? It went in T. Townsend Brown's time. How do we, how, but Keith, think about it a minute. How do we know that the patent re- is real? Okay, you know what I'm saying? Maybe it's just that's a false flag to tell us that, uh, oh, yeah, we, uh, we, we do have that technology. It's really not aliens, you know. I, I think there's more, there's more here that's not being said, and uh, there's a game being played, but we'll find out. Well, We're here to talk about our statistics. You know? Well, Bob Lazar came forward, and he put his – Stuff on the line and told us what was going on and a lot of people are saying oh he's a charlatan la 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 but i've been watching the whole thing unfold with bob lazar i actually got on a plane and i have a shirt that says the morgan curve on the breast and the pictures on the back and this old guy says to me oh the morgan curve and i say oh i'm smiling at him i say he's got good eyesight for his age he's sitting in the aisle seat i'm in front of him so he can only see what's on my breast pocket he says, yeah, that's on Mars in the Sedonia region. And I said, excuse me, I want to sit next to this guy. <laughs> I was like, this guy worked. He said, I worked at one of the lakes out in Nevada. I said, you worked at Area 51? No, I, there are other lakes out there. I said, Papoose Lake? Oh, 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 you didn't hear that from me. He came over with the paperclip guys, Von Braun and the rest of them. And he, came, he was on the team that came up with the fuel for the SR-71 Blackbird. Right. He's telling me about how nature makes his natural parabola. That's why the lenses in our eyes do what they do. And they, had, they grew a ceramic lens. I didn't even know you could grow a ceramic lens. He said the hard part was stopping it from growing, but they were able to pull it off because they had to make the ceramic lens for the SR-71 moving at Mach 3. The air friction causes the lens to warp and distort. And I'm sitting here talking to living history that will probably never get acknowledgement because what he's been doing for all that time was classified. He was caught up in some chemical accident. He said at the time they got to him and his team, he was the only survivor. They said he must have been without oxygen for five minutes. And they thought he was going to only live for like maybe uh, a year or two more. But he's like 87 or 88 and still kicking. But it was just a coincidence that I came across this guy because my wife made me miss my plane that was supposed to go straight to Dallas. So we had to get a connecting flight. And I'm sitting here going, nobody wouldn't believe any of this stuff because they don't pay attention to what's going on in front of them. People put blinders on. They look straight ahead, but they don't look far enough down the road to see what's coming. The technologies that are coming out, the quantum glass battery, the bloom box, the uh, lithium metal battery, All of these solid-state technologies and new ways of generating electricity, they're all coming out of the woodwork right now. And people are going, oh, that's going to be another 10 years before that actually becomes practical. And No, we're at that – 
that point was the the um the curve that is every 18 years Moore's law every 18 months there is a change in the technology and it increases exponentially and we're at that point where the technology where we thought was impossible is about to step out of the woodwork now in order for these guys to keep up with our progression they have to tell us that where this technology came from because they can't keep saying oh it's impossible is impossible is impossible because now there's things that are coming out that everybody thought was impossible and the whole paradigm is starting to change the sun is not the fusion reactor they've been telling us this is an electromagnetic universe and there's companies that have come up with techniques to use this same technology to generate electricity like brilliant can, power can we can we go to that statement you made that, that we're we're due for a paradigm change linda can talk to that yes well, I think, you know, the technology is all very fine. And, you know, if it's one thing we um, uh, exceed and do well in a capitalist society is find opportunities to make money off of new technology. So, you know, I'm not worried about that coming out. Um, I think that the, the paradigm shift is that, uh, which is larger, it's like, why don't people care about this? And, you know, that is not some of the, uh, the fear that's driving the uh, let's ignore this is going on is the implications that has for spirituality, for, for uh, religions, just for control and in general. I mean, you know, when I was a young college student, et cetera, I mean, it was the, the byword was question authority, you know, and I think that this is the ultimate questioning of authority. And if we, if people find out that, okay, so there really are actually entities from other planets and there's other intelligences out there in the universe and that we're not alone. Um, what does that imply for our ability to control our fate and control our, our histories and control our society and control our governments? And, uh, you know, these are really large questions and it's so much easier to um, to focus on, you know, well, will we have better cars or, you know, that kind of thing, or, you know, will our cell phones be, be more complex. And uh, it, it's, um, I don't know the answer for it. All I know is that I think that it's good that experiencers especially are bringing up these issues and that, that people that have been involved in this or have had an experience or have thought about it or interested in it, that, you know, we, we become more complex people and more philosophical and more open to, uh, it opens people's minds, you know, and I think that that's, that's a good thing that will affect everything in the culture. And even just we've seen how this last year of COVID that, that driving everybody inside and in the, the isolation is that, that, you know, people have had to actually spend time thinking, you know, that we, we've gotten to the point in our, our culture that, 
You know, it used to be like if you went to a bank and you had to wait in the line because they had tellers and you, you know, didn't have machines, you know, you would, you'd either chat with other people in the line or you just, you know, mentally go over your grocery list or whatever, or think about, you know, the, the mysteries of the universe. Now what's what everybody do? I mean, I, I love going to the doctor's office and seeing everybody pull out their phone and I just sit there and think and meditate on things, you know, because it's like nobody, Nobody is willing to spend the time paying attention to what's happening to their world, which is the larger problem of this whole UFO phenomenon. You know, add to that, um, we've had a little bit of experience with trying to get academia interested in this. Um, as a reporter, I went to a couple of colleges and, I, and went through their public relations department, and I said, the question we'd like to ask this UFO topic matter continues to blossom. Uh, how are the colleges going to deal with it? Because all their, all their education programs are all very stovepipe. Where is it going to fit into things? Recently, I reached out to a bunch of New York State University of New York colleges and I sent a briefing document, which is basically one of the uh, one of the uh, phenomena measurement essays we wrote and published in our book. And I sent this to him and I sent it to the physics department, the philosophy department, the behavioral sciences department and the earth sciences department. Okay, and I did this for 16 schools in upstate New York a few weeks ago, and it's been crickets. Well, you guys and me, we know that there's a lot more to this than what's being let on. And and then you've got the others who put the beliefs before the facts. And because we put the facts together and everything we put together as facts says, hey, we're not alone. There's other societies. There's There's ways to do things that we thought were impossible because the the whole story was you can't travel amongst the stars. Nobody's come here, but now we're getting to a point where, Oh yeah, you can, if you do this and you bend this and you use this can make that trip between one star to the other. He's I, I've had news director after news director, after editor, after editor tell me, Oh, they can't get, get here from there. Yes, there's life out there in the universe, but they can't get here from there. And I, I always make the point to them, I said, you know, guys, remember, 175 years ago, we didn't believe in germ theory. You know, uh, back in Galileo's time, everybody thought the universe went around the earth. And the same thing goes with this topic matter. Um, it took uh, Columbus three months to get here. We do it in six hours now in a conventional airliner. So the point is, it's just because we don't know how to do it doesn't mean they don't know how to do it. And I keep bringing this point up, and there's this total closed mind to the idea of this, as Linda said, a paradigm-shifting reality. Well, we're in a new industrial this. revolution. My yeah, colleagues, we're, I worked in a maintenance shop. I fixed this technology from the component level, okay? State-of-the-art video audio equipment. And my colleagues are talk, saying to me, why are you wasting your time with that computer? 
Look, when we come back from break, can we can we go into some of the uh, some of the drivers' information because there's uh, some sure. amazing things we learned about talking about the UFO sightings drivers. Okay. Sure, and I'd like to just jump in for one second on the conversation where you're talking about them getting from here to there. I would ask, where is the there they're coming from? I mean, now we are even considering interdimensional. You know, they may not be in the same physical universe even. Yes. I, I, I tend to lean that way. I think Linda does too. Um, we tend to see that as that, that the evidence seems to point at that, but our, our data can't confirm any of that. In fact, in our book, we say we don't know where they're from. We don't know what they eat. We don't know anything about their culture. We don't know how to get here. But we can measure the things that we can, we can document and do statistics on the things we can measure. And we've learned a lot. Well, that's great. And we look forward to exploring more about the drivers. We still have some time here. Um, Keith? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm looking at the history. And one of the things is on my, uh, in our online page is the incident with Veronis and Zimbabwe. And with the uh, Veronis thing, at that point in time, Mr. Bush uh, Sr., he said, I'm not going to meet with Winston Gorbachev without an agenda when he was in the States. And actually, I met him because he was my mom's old boss, and he was vice president when I met him. And he signed a card, gave it to me. I gave it to my mother and because uh, she worked for Central Intelligence for 38 years. He said he wasn't going to meet with Mr. Gorbachev without an agenda. And then the story comes out of Russia from their news agency, TASS, about these kids seeing the craft and the aliens that got out and the little cube robot or whatever. And then after that, suddenly Mr. Bush had a change of heart. Oh, yeah, I'm going to meet with Mr. Gorbachev in Malta out in the middle of a storm on a ship where they had to be isolated. What were they talking about? You think they were talking about Gorbachev twisting his arm with this story? Because Mr. Bush said to me, if the, if the American people knew what we had done, they'd run us out of town on a rail tarred and feathered. I had no idea what he was talking about. Okay, But he said there was an, There's another quote. That he had another quote. Bush the senior had another quote. I don't think the American people can handle the truth yeah. about this topic matter. <laughs> yeah. It, it, whatever is going on, he knows, and he has always known. Um, so we need to find out what it is. And the only way to do that, like I said, we got to rain brimstone and fire down on the people who do know because they've been lying all this time. And it's been compartmentalized so bad that the people who think they know what's going on don't have a clue. So it's time for us to get the answers that we deserve. I mean, it's, it's like any revolution is that it's a large part, it really the most effective ones start from the bottom and go up. And I think while it's nice to say, oh, well, we need to know what the government knows. I think that there's, you know, a lot of people and researchers in, in the UFO community, they're doing a lot of work and we're, I mean, we're part of disclosure. You know, we don't have to wait for the government to, to get this information out. Okay. You and I and all of, all of us, the four of us, are doing that right now. All right. We're entering break time. So 
You're on the other side of midnight. Your host tonight is Cynthia and Keith Morgan. And we'll be back right after this break. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 Point Archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. Welcome back to the other side of midnight, and uh, we're having a great conversation here. So I'm going to bring back our guests, Cheryl and uh, Linda Costa, and uh, we're going to pick up where they left off. And uh, we got more stuff coming. This this is doing great. I love this. <laughs> we should need to do this more often, Cynthia. So, uh, so Cheryl, um, where were we? Well, we're. I wanted to get a. Cynthia brought up the point. She wanted to know about the about the hours uh, when the UFOs are. Consistently, it there. It, there's little variances at 
at, di at different states have some variances, but by and large, 75% of the sightings occur between 5 o'clock in the afternoon and about 11.30 at night, 5.30 in the afternoon and about 11.30 at night, with about 80% um, of that 75% happening between 8.30 and 10.30 at night, okay? And the rest of the 16 hours a day, from like 1 o'clock in the morning through to about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, only represents about 25% of the total sightings on any particular day or, or any particular month or year, okay? Uh, this is pretty consistent. And the only places we have some goofiness with it is some of the smaller states that actually have so so few sightings. We don't have enough data points to to average it out. But you, if you stand back and look at it, you can see that it's pretty much the same pattern, uh, pretty much flat. There's some interesting things that happen between three o'clock in the morning and five o'clock in the morning. There are some spikes. Um, we used to think that five o'clock in the morning one was people going out and you know getting their car warmed up like in the wintertime or something like that, or taking the dog out for that first walk, going out for uh, a smoke and taking the dog out kind of thing. But we discovered it's like if you go to uh, Nevada, we discovered that after midnight, as the numbers were falling off, there was a bump at one o'clock, two o'clock, and four o'clock in the morning. And I showed it to an investigator up there, and she said, oh, that's when the clubs and the shows let out. So we found out that the hourly uh, data was affected by human activity. Um, when I was at the um, Ozarks um, uh, UFO conference, uh, I was showing a chart, and oh, uh, Arkansas had a bump at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I said, I have no idea what that's about. And I said that to the audience. After the talk, I had about a dozen guys come up to me and said, hey, we're all chicken farmers. Chicken farming is big here in Arkansas. I said, okay. And they said, well, that's when 3 o'clock in the morning is when we prep our birds to go to market. So we're all outside. And that kind of gave us an understanding of why there was a spike like that. Um, so these hours of darkness and leisure time are the big thing. Now, what happened was, as we were coming into 2020, remember the numbers, the numbers for sightings fell off drastically after 2014. They were going down by 30% a year. And it bottomed out around 2017, 2018 timeframe. It bottomed out. Even Peter Davenport at the National UFO Reporting Center was doing newspaper articles. What happened to all the sightings? Uh, as a reporter, I was getting letters from fans saying, oh, Space Force must have chased them all away, you know, that type of thing. And I kept trying to tell people there was a natural cycle to this. Okay, it's about, about a six to seven year cycle. Well, remember in the first book, people ask us, why didn't you go back 40 years? So with the second book, um, the, the 2001 to 2020 book, we did go back. We didn't do all the statistics. We just kept magnitude. We went back to 1960 and brought it up to the year 2000. And the whole total sightings that were in the databases for that 40-year period amounted to about 13,150, something like that, okay? And while that sounds like a big number, it averages out to about somewhere between 250 and maybe 400 a year. 2001, we had like 3,500 sightings. Again, this is the deployment of broadband. So I, tell people, I showed people there wasn't a lot to really measure 
from 1960 to 2000. So that's why we didn't do, do that. Now, here we go with something goofy. Uh, leisure time and hours of darkness. Um, in February of 2020, just before we went into lockdown, uh, George Knapp called me up and said, hey, my phone's ringing off the hook. People are seeing sightings every place. And I had actually taken 2019 off from UFO stuff because I, I had other projects to work on. And by the way, the numbers were in the toilet at the time. So I went out and did a quick, quick look at National UFO Reporting Center for January and February of 2000 and saw their monthly numbers for those two first two months of 2020. And they were significantly up. So I pulled up one of my old spreadsheets that had all of them since 2001. And it was the best year since 2014, just based on those two numbers, so those two months. So I stuck them into a model we had developed, and it predicted that 2020, if it kept up at that rate, was going to be a banner year. And it ended up turning out to being, uh, 2020 ended up being uh, equivalent to 2012, which is really fantastic. Now, the other thing that happened was people, a lot of my fans, Called, uh, called Linda and I up and said, hey, uh, if we're going into lockdown, that would be a perfect laboratory to measure this uh, leisure time thing. And amazingly enough, the leisure time thing was amazing. March and April sightings were through the roof because what did we do during that lockdown? We, we watched streaming TV, we ate too much and drank too much probably. And also a lot of people were out on the decks or out in the backyard. They couldn't go any place. They were taking the dog out and the numbers went through the roof in March and April of 2000. And then they kind of leveled out for the rest of the year. You know what? I was wondering if these guys had the COVID going just to keep everybody inside because they didn't want us seeing what was going on in the skies. Because I think these guys are going, uh, are going to tell us what's going on, whether the governments do or not. And I think by 2022, I think not going to be disclosure. I think it's going to be global first contact. And these guys are just going to put on a show in the sky that I don't care who you are, you can't deny it. And everybody's going to see it, and they're going to have to wake up. That's the way I'm seeing it. But who knows? Uh, I agree with you, Keith. Uh, that's what I've been saying is that I think that really the one who controls all this is ET and that until they're ready, you know, um, we can hope and, you know, push, but it's, just, it's really, uh, they're the ones with the power and the technology at this point. Yeah. And, you know, if they wanted to really push this topic, they would, you know, and they haven't so far. So there must be some reason that we don't understand. You know, I always hear the skeptics say, well, if they really want to make contact with us, why don't they land on the White House lawn? Okay. And there's, uh, there's a lot of good reasons why they shouldn't. Okay. There's a lot of good reasons why they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, because there's enough, anybody tries to land on the White House lawn that isn't something of our technology or the president's helicopter is going to get shot down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they have more ordinance on up in the, the, the uh, attic floor of the uh, white house than you can shake a stick at. So uh, it, it, I don't see that happening, but I, the idea that they might go out here and put on a show if our, our leadership um, doesn't wake up and start being straight with us. I think that's a definite possibility. 
and talking to the experiencers, I, I even think that's an even bigger possibility that if our government doesn't come clean with us about this stuff, probably because of our ecology, I, I think I think the ET is going to put on a show. And uh, I've often thought that they have like a prime directive like they had in Star Trek and they just didn't want to interfere with our culture. But I think I don't think tolerate the idea of a, of a whole planetary society committing suicide because they're too dumb to take care of their world. Yeah, I um, I like I said, I had encounters, not just sightings, but two encounters that I'm consciously aware of. And one of them, both of them took place early hours of the morning, actually. Um, one, I was walking home at 1230 or one o'clock in the morning. And that was, uh, that was an experience. And I'm looking up above the trees, seeing this something above the trees with these lights, colored lights going on. That's the last thing I remember. I'm walking back down the path that we used to take, which was across the street from me and took us to our junior high school. And I'm headed back in the direction where I was standing on the opposite side of the street. And I'm coming out of some kind of fog and there's these two little guys. I look to the right, there's one little guy and I look to the left, there's the other little guy. And I bolted and ran down the path and shimmied under a car. And then these little feet come up along the side of the car and I can't stay awake. It's like somebody anesthetized me and I never felt that feeling before in my life. And then the second time I had that feeling, I was living out here where I am now, asleep in bed, dead asleep. And next thing I know, I just opened my eyes. I'm looking off the side of the bed and I see these two little guys and I'm going, you've been working at this too hard. Because that's when I was really starting to investigate this stuff. And I said, okay, well, if the guy's sitting out there, I can reach out and touch him. And I can't move my arms, but then my right arm slowly moves out towards the guy. He grabs my arm. And I'm in that dark period again. I don't remember anything, but I come out of the dark period, and the guy's putting my arm back under the covers. And then that feeling that I had before, I couldn't stay awake, and it just, boom, and I'm out. Next morning, I wake up, and I'm going, wow, that was a weird dream. And then I said, well, what was he doing with my arm? And I looked at my arm, and here's the deepest, neatest cut I ever saw in my life, diagonally across the vein on my arm. And I showed it to my wife. I could spread it, look down inside of it, didn't hit the vein. There was no blood, no pain. And my wife goes, how'd you do that? And then I told the story, and she didn't want to have nothing to do with it. So <laughs> that's the encounters I've had. And that's probably the first time I ever talked about it on radio to anybody. But we thank you for coming out of the closet. <laughs> oh yeah, well, um, yeah, I've been keeping my mouth quiet for the longest time. As long as I was working for Disney and ABC, I kept my mouth quiet. But I told them in 1988, "Hey, we got duped." NASA sent out a press release announcing a briefing about Mars at the National Press Club, and everybody went down there, including my camera crew, which should have been sitting out there with me. And I'm going, where's my camera crew? Where's the rest of the media? Then I get home, turn the TV on. Dan Rather says, today, NASA held a briefing about Mars. And I said, wait a minute. There was no cameras there. What am I looking at? And then I found out they sent out that press release. Everybody went out there, including my camera crew, down to the National Press Club. 
and I knew it was an egghead maneuver. So I told the president, vice president, and head of ABC News, Burke, Murphy, and Arledge, Rune Arledge. And I told them, hey, we got duped. That's when I took that orthographically correct photo that Dr. Carlotto gave me, put it in a copy machine. It came out black and white, and I discovered the Morgan curve by accident. And then Earl Torrin expanded on it, and I was like, that was the clincher. There's no way he could have made this up because I found the majority of the mounds. And the math is just geometry. It's simple geometry. You know, and I'm like, why are they covering this up? Because it leads to a bigger story. The history of this planet is not what we have been taught. Agreed. You know, one of the other things that goes with that, I, I was listening to some other NASA scientists say that uh, when they got a couple of one of the particular probes up there uh, crawling around on Mars, uh, they were measuring the, the gases in the atmosphere and they measured a very high level of xenon. And the first thing this one scientist said, he says, why God, you know, that, that level of xenon, they got nuked. Mars got nuked. Yep. You only get that kind of level of xenon if, if, if there's been a nuclear reaction, a big, big one. John Brandenburg made, came to the same conclusion. There was something going on and something nuclear took place up there. And there's, there's, there's seals from Samaria. Um, uh, can I can I give you one? Can I give you one? Yeah. You know, I I work work in remote viewing a bit, okay? And I've taught five classes over the past 20 years, or maybe 25 years. I'm not sure, but um, every one of my classes, one of the target cards that keeps getting cycled back into the envelopes is visit the alien base on the backside of the moon. Now, these cards are blind to the people who are doing the remote viewing, okay? Mm -hmm. And every single one of those um, classes, uh, some people couldn't go there, and there's a phenomenon where some people just can't go to where you're sending them, but almost uh, almost everybody came back that you'd get them out of, the, out of their zone, so to speak, and uh, done work in the protocols, and there'd be remarks like, whoever those people were, they didn't want us there. And basically, you know, I, I, in the last 20 years, I've sent about 25, 30 people to the backside of the moon and to this base. And they were very aware of the people that were there doing the remote viewing. So uh, when I hear people talk about bases on the moon, I, I don't giggle at them, believe me, because I, I've had people go, go there with the remote viewing sessions. And Ingo Swan went there with it, you know. I, I think we have the ability to do these things, and it's just starting to blossom, and we're starting to really give it some credibility. But they don't want to do that. They, they want to keep us in this box and not look outside the box. Don't look over the top of the lid because if you do, you may like what you're looking at, and you might not pay us any attention anymore. And we love lost control and that's what they're worried about. But it's time for us to grow up. We've been doing this for how long? We've been playing this dance, and we have been lied to again and again and again. And we've had people come and tell us, hey, this is what's going on. You know, Cobble used to drop me off in my car after the show, and we talk about stuff. I said one night, I said, Ted, I think the cigarette companies have a conspiracy going. Keith, do you really think the tobacco industry has a conspiracy going? And I'm like, well, there's people blowing the whistle on these guys, but nobody's listening to them. 
the peons are blowing the whistle, but when the guy at the top blew the whistle, oh, now it's a story? Why does it take somebody with the power, reputation, and prestige to blow the whistle before you give it credibility when you had all of these people in large numbers telling you this is what's going on behind the scenes? You Keith, let, me give you, let me give you a flavor in that same line. People look at our big number, our 167,000 uh, number, okay? And I get the kooks uh, – I always get the remark, well, did you take out the kooks, nuts, and crack pots? Okay. And I quote this line from um, the movie Amadeus about uh, Mozart. You know, the emperor comes to him and tells him he did a wonderful job with his symphony and everything. And all he needed to do was take out some of the notes and it would be perfect. And of course, Mozart's answer is, uh, what notes would you like me to take out? Well, I have the same attitude on this. Um, Dr. Belay said that 80% of the sighting information out there is noise. MUFON investigators felt about 70% was noise. Linda and I used a different criteria, and we came up with that 68 to 70% was noise. So let's take 70% as noise. If you go against our sighting numbers, um, 30% being the possible really good stuff uh, gives us about 50,000. You divide that by 20 years, and it gives you something on the order of about 2,500 a year. Now, when you divide that 2,500 a year by 12 months, you end up with a number of 214. Now, people say, well, what's that 214? That says that every month, and that's for 20 years, that's 240 months over the last 20 years. Every month for 240 months, we've had about 214, 210 uh, sightings that were something special. Now, if all states were equal, they're not, but if all states were equal, you take that 214 divided by 50 states, it comes up to four for every state in the country, or basically one exotic event a week, every week for the last 20 years for all 50 states. So even when you throw out 70% of the numbers, something remarkable is going on when you look at the statistics. I love the math. I, I, I love the math because math doesn't lie. What's the one absolute in this world that nobody, I don't care who you are, or what you are, or where you are can dispute is change. Everything changes. And there's very few absolutes in this world. Uh, Carl Sagan said, oh, mathematics is the universal language. And I'm going, no, I don't think so. Mathematics was created by man to quantify the true universal language, with his, which is quantity. Every living thing recognizes quantity. Okay, I can go to any country and start holding fingers up, and they know I'm counting up. Or take them down, they know I'm counting down. Some countries is the reverse, but they understand I'm counting. A rat facing a cat, he's going to fight the cat. But if there's two cats, he ain't going to say, I see two cats. He says, there's more than me. I'm out of here. <laughs> a, a, a mother duck with five ducklings. She doesn't say, I see five ducklings. Oh, wait, I see four. One's missing. She knows by quantity that one's missing. Okay. Every living thing recognizes quantity in its own right. And 
That is the basics of mathematics. And since quantity is an absolute, because even absence of quantity is quantity, that means math is an absolute. So the number one is change, and I, and I dare somebody try to dispute that. And the second is, we're going to call it math, but it's quantity, okay? So there's very few absolutes in this world, and just those two alone, using those as criteria for how we're looking at things, if you look at stuff with an open mind, you will see what's going on, especially from the, the mathematical standpoint. But okay, you know, Keith, you know something? We're, part of the reason I told you about that model with the numbers mm -hmm. is we constantly hear this from news directors and, and, and editors. Oh, well, do you have credible reporting? And that was part of this whole whitewash over the last, this is 68, is did you ever notice that, you know, oh, hey, there was a UFO sighting and they go out there to some trailer park or some farm and, and, and put a camera in front of somebody. And, uh, and when it cut back to the anchor, he would roll, he or she would roll their eyes. Okay. Uh, signaling, oh, this isn't a credible person. And, and that's why these Navy pilots have been getting so much press because they are considered uh, trained observers and, and, quote, credible. And I think the thing about the preliminary report that really um, uh, pissed me off, and I'm going to say that word, was the fact that they were throwing the pilots under the bus. They were throwing the technology under the bus. Okay, But you don't... One of the things that were, were, isn't being said, I met some of those guys from the Princeton, that's the rate, advanced radar ship. They got the top of the line at that time, the top of the line technology on that radar ship protecting the carrier group, which is at that time was the Nimitz. And I talked to a bunch of these sailors, at, including their chief petty officer, at, um, at uh, the Laughlin UFO con uh, conference uh, in, in about a year ago, about a year ago, or actually in 2019, 2020 messes this up. It's like a lost year. Uh, but uh, these guys were telling us they couldn't tell anybody. They were sworn to secrecy, but their reality had been changed because of what their pilots were experiencing, what they saw on radar, and they saw the performance of this thing dropping from 80,000 feet to sea level in like almost nothing, okay? And some of these guys, because they couldn't tell anybody, lost marriages over it because the guys were stressing out and the wives went to the natural spot, okay, who is she? You know, that kind of thing. And so there's been a human toll with all of this secrecy and with the, the whole cover-up of this topic matter. And it really needs to come out, and our academics need to get involved with this thing and get sobered up. So, yeah, we need the government to come clean and say, yeah, this stuff is real, and get academia, properly trained academics, to start analyzing this stuff. And it's important. Right now, um, like I said, we got an underpaid librarian and retired uh, uh, analyst doing this kind of work. And this is, this is what is wrong. In fact, um, we're getting ready to send a, 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 a letter to Senator Warner, Warner and Senator Rubio with the stats for their state, 
with the maps and their uh, plotted UFOs by their by their zip codes, you know, to show them, you know, yeah, it's great what's going you know going on with the Navy, but how about the rest of the freaking country, guys? You know, there's more to this, and I'm really really concerned that when we do have congressional hearings, they are not going to bring in the civilian experts who have been studying this stuff for years. And, yeah. and it just breaks my heart that Stanton Friedman's dead because he'd be one of the key – everybody that was on that uh, citizen's hearing would be appropriate people to be in front of Congress. I agree. Um, I I was so pissed at that nine-page report. They had 180 days to come up with this report. They should have had 180 pages. No, nine pages. And all it says is, well, we don't know what they are. And the task force didn't come up with enough information to, to determine what they are. They know what this stuff is. They've known. They're, approach, they're approaching it from the oh, we got to prove it thing. Oh, see, Linda and I did not take that approach. We just said let's just measure what's measurable here instead of trying to prove what it is or who's who's from. I know you got to go to break. Yeah, we're coming up on the break. Um, so, yeah, this is to me. This is us coming to a major head and somebody's got to blink. And I think the guys who've been sitting on this for the longest time, they're the ones who are going to have to blink because the technologies that are coming out right now, they can say, Oh, these, these people developed this. They discovered that. And just like Philip Corso said, he told them, you come up with the way you discovered this, but you never saw me. And he'd give them the technology so they could reverse engineer it. But now we're, we've got stuff coming out of the woodwork all over the place. And they're going to have to explain where it's coming from. Okay, you're on the other side of midnight, and uh, we'll be right back after this break. fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Hey. 
the other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. side of midnight here your hosts are Kanthea and Keith Morgan and we're heading into our last half hour um we're going to come back to uh Cheryl and Linda now and this is getting good I love it so we're we were talking about uh the the implications of what these guys are trying to hide and what they have to do to get out of the hole that they dug for themselves. And I have an idea, but uh, Cheryl or Linda, you got any ideas how these guys could dig themselves out of this hole they've made for themselves? Well, okay. There's been an effort over the last three or four years to bring this stuff out to the public. Okay. Um, Had, at least the inside people in D.C. who are lobbyists for our community. Uh, when um, Trump won the election, it was a bit of a surprise. And had Hillary won, we probably would have had this disclosure conversation a couple of uh, five years ago. But uh, the talk was that um, if Biden won, then it was, we were going to definitely go down this route of a level of some level of disclosure probably congressional hearings, bring more of it out, and uh, just basically generally get get the public acclimated to the idea. And all the best people, I'm sorry, uh, all the best people that I've talked to um, about this down in D.C. seem to think it's following this track. Um, the one thing that that nine-page thing did, they used the word threat and the word of, of security about eight or nine times. So this gave the this gives the uh, committee chairs uh, the leverage they need to call for congressional hearings. So it'd be interesting to see uh, what they do. There is another report coming uh, because this was the preliminary uh, and uh, there's a there's a saying about putting a generation uh, a preliminary report. You gave them something. You delivered something. And in in government contracting terms, sometimes you can't have it exactly the way. Uh, they what they requested it, but you give them something. Do not miss a deadline and not give them something. 
Okay, so I that's what I half expected. I half expected that they were not going to deliver the goods that the UFO community had, but notice that it has what they did deliver loosened up the media tremendously. Uh, there was an article, this article I mentioned earlier in the program, they did a story of a Gannett, the Gannett papers in upstate New York, there were five of them. A story was written out of the um, uh, written out of the uh, Binghamton, New York uh, uh, paper uh, about the UFOs. And the guy interviewed me extensively on the phone, and he also got together with our MUFON director and interviewed him. It was a huge story. And uh, the headline literally was, can they really be real? Okay. That, and it was a front page story, you know, and, uh, you know, my, my mother's in Gorning, New York, you know, and she, my God, my, my, my kid's front page story here, you know, so uh, and I'm about UFOs that, that, that was a big deal. And uh, so we're, people are loosening up and starting to talk to us. They're, the media is starting to take this approach. We have to start treating this stuff as if it's real. Get over the shock. Back when ATIP was talked about back in December of 2017, uh, a lot of people say, oh, that was disclosure. Actually, 2017 was a disclosure year, and a lot of people don't realize it. Uh, in, in February of 2017, there was a release of CIA documents from, and the majority of it was uh, uh, Henry Kissinger cables from back during the Nixon administration. But there was some UFO research stuff posted. Now, the CIA used to take an approach of saying, oh, we're not studying this stuff. Back in the 70s and 80s, they said this. But if you looked at those PDFs, and I know the Washington uh, uh, New York Times looked at them very thoroughly, as that did I. And I downloaded a lot of those PDFs, and there was at least one there that was uh, from about 1950, 51, uh, to Department of OSI, the Office of Scientific Investigation within the CIA, were pulling their hair out because there was this monthly pattern associated with UFO sightings. They were pulling their hair out, and there were notes in the margins. Is this due to asteroids? Is this summer madness? What is causing this monthly rise in July and, uh, July and August? Okay, they had about 129 sightings to gather data from. Here we are in, 2000, in 2017 with our first book. Uh, we had 5,900 sightings, and it, there is a definite peak in July and August, but we discovered that it was primarily northern states. You go to New England or anywhere across the part of the United States, uh, it, it's got a level number, uh, level number of sightings to about May. It starts to tick up a little bit. July and August go through the roof and then it trails off again a little bit in September and then it goes for October, November, December. It trails off to that quiescent level that we see around spring, what we call the winter level. And we, we seem to feel that the people who are giving those sightings are people who are out on a regular basis, rain or shine, dog walkers, smokers, uh, people coming outside for a break at, at the factory, that kind of thing. People who have a regular schedule, we seem to think that. So that was that was an eye opener for us. And um, I, I guess I guess the big point that I'm making is that reviewing the data the way we have, we've gotten a great deal of interest of late. Uh, about talking about it, not just saying, you know, a couple of years ago, people were, uh, 
couple of news stories that were done about it. But, oh, California is number one, rah, rah, rah. And, of course, they didn't want to talk about anything else. And uh, we've, we've now, with all this revelation with the Navy stuff over the last three, three years or so, has gotten people into – they start Googling to try and find out information, and they find us with our book uh, – our two books of statistics. And uh, that's been kind of fun to, to deal with, and, and especially back in 2017 when they, after a tip was talked about. Uh, uh, I watch these morning talk shows on CNN or ABC and NBC. You know, they're talking to their 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 uh, their the commentators, and they're all sitting there like a deer in the headlights when the question was asked. Well, what do you think about this stuff with the uh, the government had this program, a tip program to study? And they're all sitting there saying, uh, "Well, um, I don't know," that, because they're not read, they're not up on the topic matter, they are totally ill prepared. And they aren't willing to go out and talk to people who are prepared to talk this topic matter. And this is the big scary part. And we really, I really, really hope that the media wises up now that we're getting this revelation that the stuff is real to really talk to people who have studied this. Guys like uh, Robert Haster, uh, he did an he did an op-ed piece for the uh, Washington Examiner about a week or two ago, talking about the fact that you know uh, has anybody mentioned the fact that these things were shutting down our missile silos for for you know in the 60s, 70s, and 80s? You know, no, that conversation hasn't come up yet, but it needs to. Yeah, it should have been the president to shut those down, but they were trying to tell us something. <laughs> they were trying to tell us something. And these guys still keep covering it up. And I think we're going to. Well, there's one point, one point that goes with that, though. And Mm -hmm. and this is this is where I'll buy into the cover up. Okay, Um, uh, there. I want to say this. Haster, if I ever needed a smoking gun, it was his presentation on this topic matter about our missile silos being shut down because he had documents that were declassified from other aspects of the government that talked about this stuff. And Linda and I sat there in that banquet room listening to this guy's presentation and said, if I ever needed a smoking gun, if I was ever just a, a step back from accepting that this is real, this was the smoking gun. And the funny thing about it is, is when Dr. Condon did his report to Congress, he had made up his mind a year before he gave it, even though people in his staff said there's 30% here we really should be looking at. And he was writing it off and he wrote that whole report in a way that it would kill any kind of scientific investigation for as it's been 50 years. But the funny thing is I, I forgive Dr. Kahn. I, I think he should roast in hell for it personally. Right? That's my attitude. But I do forgive him for one thing top Air Force brass neglected to tell him that these things were shutting down the missile silos and missiles, okay? He did not know this before he delivered his report to Congress. Yeah. So, yes, there's been cover-up, but the Air Force also wanted out of the UFO business. And have you noticed how quiet they've been through all of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because the TR three belongs to the Air Force, as far as I. Yeah, well, anyway, don't go, don't go to the technology. Okay. Just look at policy with the Air Force. They have been uncharacteristically quiet, and there, Lou Alessandro's 
told me in the interview that there was middle management people in the Pentagon that would not allow his reports to get up to Secretary Mattis. This whole and this remember the uh, the uh, the uh, the defense intelligence groups that wouldn't touch this topic matter when the Nimitz report uh, people were reporting him and other aircraft carriers were starting to report this activity. They wouldn't touch it. They didn't want the stigma. That's why we got the UAP designation. The problem we're dealing with here, there has been, and I, I was in two military services. I served in the Air Force and served in Vietnam, and I served in the Cold War Navy. And there has been a drastic breakdown in the chain of command reporting structure. Information like this should have been able to be communicated up, but middle-level management was sitting on it in the Pentagon. In fact, part of the things going on right now, there's a little war going on over at the Pentagon, and they were upset with the preliminary report. There are people over there who do not want this stuff coming out, and there's a whole faction of people over there who do want this stuff to come out. And uh, I've got this on good authority. So, um, I, you know what my advice to people right now is? Don't worry about that preliminary report. Sit back, get your popcorn ready, because there's, uh, we're, it's going to be quite a show when stuff starts being revealed. I agree. This definitely, <clears throat> we're just getting the show on the road. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, well, do, you have, do you have more questions? Do you have, do you have more questions for Linda? Uh, well, Linda studied psychology. I'm I'm curious to explore the idea that we already have disclosure. The people already have it. So, cares about this report? Well, I have a question. <laughs> I, I have a question for Linda. Um, uh-huh. uh, John Mack, uh, he went to Zimbabwe and interviewed the over 60 kids that saw the craft and the aliens and so forth. Um, these, these children are now adults. And this, the uh, the thing is, is that they said that this influenced them in their direction in life that they took. Um, do you think that these, even though they're adults now, you think they need closure, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, the thing about closure, and I'm putting air quotes around it, is that, you know, it's like you said, that the, 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 the only thing that is constant is change. And I don't think as human beings there is such a thing as closure. There's always – it's like if you lose a loved one, you grieve, and the grief is really hard when it first starts, you know. And, you know, after a couple of years, it starts to lessen and you start to learn how to deal with life again. And but, you know, there's always going to be that moment when some you'll hear a song or you'll do something and all of a sudden you'll think about your dearly departed, you know. So was there closure? No, because we're, because of the way our brains work and the, the memories and we don't even know how memory works completely, that wanting disclosure is or wanting closure of any kind is is in itself a desire that i think is unrealistic to expect to be be um um fulfilled um i just was actually um ralph blumenthal who wrote the uh, recent book on john mack i think it was called the believer and he's actually the one who interviewed us for the new york times several years ago 
And um, uh, it's been interesting because he spent a lot of time sort of talking about John Mack's uh, personality and career and, you know, what kind of person he was. And it, to me, it's been fascinating because he was a very complex person. And I think it it's emphasizing to me that all of us, you know, you, um, uh, you know, Cheryl, anybody who's involved in this, we all bring our own prejudices and experiences and um, these these uh, uh, people in Zimbabwe, I think we saw, didn't we see a documentary or something yes, that about that? Yeah, that was, that was very interesting. And, They're and, making another one about these kids as well as yeah, adults. Yeah, and I think, I think that actually they're, they're, they're being part of disclosure because if nothing else, they're showing that, you know, this is taking place worldwide, that it's not just the, the white people in the U.S. that are experiencing this, that, you know, that it's affecting cultures all over the planet. Um, I know one of the more fascinating things I've heard is that down in Brazil and South America, they have more um, incidents of the diamond-shaped uh, UFOs. And that the culture down there is if you see a diamond-shaped UFO, you get the hell out of there because there's something always bad happens when they're seen. Hide the goats, hide the kids. Yeah, you know, so I think that there's, I think, I think there is disclosure. I think a lot of people know already, all these people that are being touched, um, all these people that are have even, you know, and, even, and Cheryl was talking the other day, she says, you know, even if you've just seen a UFO, you are now an experiencer because you just experienced something and some just seeing one UFO can um, um, affect your life. You know, it, it makes you a different person. You are changed by the experience. And to me, that's saying that's the paradigm shift is that, that, that people are being changed by all this. And that seems to be one of the, um, aims of the ETs is that they're trying to change humans so they stop being so violent so they start being more kind to each other so they start taking care of their planet and don't trash it and and, and assume that everything is replaceable because it's not and it's (laughs) when we try to influence things when we have have cultural differences, you know, the, the traditional way of dealing with it is that, well, you get a bunch of weapons and like you beat each other up. That's the way you solve problems. And that, guess what? That's not working. And I think that they've been trying to educate us and to influence us that there's another way of doing things. And they have the patience of taking <coughs> decades, if not hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, if not millions of years, to to change humans one person at a time. I mean, just look at the patience of that, the, the planning of that. And, and they may not be coordinated. There seems to be that there's many different types of ET. And, you know, it's, it's like the Star Trek or the Star Wars, or, that just because they're all aliens doesn't mean they all agree with each, each other either, either. But to me, I'm just wowed and amazed by this whole patience of changing one person at a time. And when you change one person at a time and you do it on the level of millions of people, that's an amazing fact. I mean, they've had studies about meditation. I know this sounds like it's going off the rails, but uh, that they've, they've had, you know, this idea that if you go into a town 
and and teach meditation to uh, a group of people there. Uh, it only has to be, I think it was like 1% or something. I, 1%, I can, yeah. Or, yeah, 1% of the, the population that they then document the level of violence and conflict and, and crime, et cetera. And it goes down over time that just just calming down and, and, and teaching a small percentage of the population to think in a different way, to experience reality in a different way. Um, I had a dear friend that uh, we actually uh, dedicated the first book to Dave Singer, and he was a he was a physicist for the Army, and in fact he was one of the designers of uh, night vision goggles. So he was a brilliant guy, and he taught me. He, he introduced me to the Freudian Society and a lot of these paranormal and UFO topics, et cetera. And we were talking at the time about you know like the role of psychedelic drugs. And he says, the reason the government is against people using drugs like marijuana or LSD or anything that makes you experience reality difference, it's what you said earlier is that, you know, if people start thinking different, it, it's, it's a, a, a threat to the authority of the governing class and the governing bodies. And um, um, I think I should stop there. <laughs> Let somebody else talk, but. That's what I'm concerned about. That's why I'm involved in this. This is why I think it's really important. It's the most important thing on our planet in our history of all times. And it just really irritates me that people, oh, that's UFOs. They're just a bunch of crackpots, you know. It's like, no, don't you see how important this is? Um, If you want to read my articles that I wrote over seven years for the Syracuse New Times, to go to Amazon and search for The UFO Beat by Cheryl Costa. You'll find that book. All uh, three a, books are on the webpage. Yeah, oh, yep, okay. yep. And uh, the new book, uh, which is our new statistics book, that has got tremendous analysis and displayed data on it. In it, uh, it's, it's pink. Can't miss it when you go to Amazon. It's bright pink. Um, it was designed to be pink on the idea that if uh, we ever ended up in front of Congress, if we want those congressmen to have a nice big pink book written by a couple of women. And, uh, but uh, it's called the UFO sightings desk reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2020. It's the UFO sightings desk reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2020 by the two of us. And uh, it's it's worth it's uh, it's worth the, it's worth the money, and it's a, it, it will open your eyes to just how big this phenomena is in the United States. Well, I have really enjoyed the revelations from both of you, and I particularly loved Linda when you were taking off there. I didn't think you needed to apologize; you needed to expand. <laughs> That's it's why I usually let Cheryl do the talking. Well, you know, something that kind of dovetail off Linda. Um, I lived in a Buddhist monastery for about seven years. And one of the things our Lama pointed out, especially with this sort of thing, is people need to be given situations that will expand their reality. I've done reports where 10 people were up at some isolated lake up in the mountains and something came down. Four people saw it for what it really was, a, a, a mechanical uh, vessel of some sort. Another two or three people saw it, perceived it in some kind of cartoon symbolic form. 
and the other two or three people didn't were staring straight at it and couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. Remember what we see, we perceive with our eyes, we process with our brain. And the problem is, as one of my llamas put it, people need to expand their reality. There's a lot of stuff going on, but they are just blind to it because they won't expand their reality. And experiencers, when they anybody, if they see a really decent UFO sighting that really makes them question that isn't a normal aircraft, and they, they start it starts wrapping their head around it a different way. That is an expansing uh, an expansing expansive of the mind moment and it will change people and frankly i'm happy for i think et's doing more sightings now so more people will get that elastic reality i'll shut up now well yeah and i think it's also time for the public to be more vocal i i applaud you for putting together this compilation of reports from the public and hopefully this will encourage more people to make reports. Can you let them know where they would file a report? Um, if they go to uh, national UFO reporting center.org, um, that would uh, be the best place to go, or they can go to MUFON.com, M-U-F-O-N. to the page. Perfect. Put them up there. Uh, I recommend National UFO Reporting Center because the information, uh, the raw information will be put up. Um, they respect privacy and, you know, they do a good job. Thank you. Thank you. So any wrap-up thoughts here in terms of where you're going with this information towards the future now? Um, I'm going to be doing it. Uh, we're getting ready to do a whole series of state books with the specs of the statistics straight down to the state level for all 50 states. And then we're going to do 29 books on just the individual shapes and the statistics. If we had done this all in one book, it would have been two foot thick. And uh, by doing it this way, it will be the largest compilation of UFO compilated data ever published in human history going to make it really hard for people to insist that nothing is going on when so many people are reporting. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> I mean, like, really? Nothing? Yeah. Two old, two old ladies in Syracuse are, make, are doing disclosure. <laughs> Thank you for having us on. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah, it has. And Keith, I really loved your stories about Zimbabwe and all the other things that you've brought up, especially your personal experiences. I think the audience enjoys, I know I enjoy hearing the personal experience. So I Thank appreciate you. Keith uh, helping me out here to fly this craft. And just a shout out to the mysterious Mr. Black. He's probably laughing right now. It's not that the monitor is broken, my bad choice of words. It's that there's some kind of electrical thing going on. We don't know what it is. We have to still identify the problem. So, folks, you know, cut us a little slack. (laughs) And, uh, Keith, any last words? Oh, well, we're at that time. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to uh, continuing the journey. Good night.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.